Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. 61? Holy cow! Holy cow! <laughs> yeah, it's getting up there. I can't believe we're still doing this. I know. I guess it's like okay. some kind of addiction or something now. Yeah, I think we now have more podcasts than listeners. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Come on, listeners. We know you're out there. We'll be crossing the 10,000 downloads mark soon. Oh, really? Will we really? How many do we have now? Well, I don't know. Getting up close to eight, I think. So. 8,000. Okay, that's yeah. not bad. So getting close to 8,000. I haven't been checking. And uh, we have more countries, people around the world listening to right. us. That's cool. Listen I've been to too us. busy listening to CDs that's right. to, uh, to check. So there you go. Well, that's been the best part about... Uh, doing this i mean other than talking with you of course oh, my good old friend me. my good old friend <laughs> but uh you know with everything that you can uh, listen to and find at your fingertips it's overwhelming so you need kind of a strategy yeah and even if you you know start looking at things you're going to be tempted to just gloss over things a lot so this right. has really given us uh, a chance to Focus on some things along with finding new things and look deeply into the music. Yeah, I like that. Have you ever seen the movie um, Until the End of the World, the Vim Vendors movie from the 90s? I think I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, it's at the very at, at the end of the movie, like the, uh, the whole Earth power grid goes down because some, some satellite gets shot down or something and there's no electricity and they all have to live sort of without that. And um, I'm just thinking that uh, if if ever the, the whole internet goes down and nobody has music anymore, I will have some for us in the the uh, the man cave <laughs> that we <laughs> that we inhabit here in Japan. You've got your CDs and got my if CDs. the electricity goes out, you can just come over here. Then I just have to read books, I guess. But I I do have books. That's one thing. I don't have the those electronic book things. I was out at a barbecue with a bunch of tech guys recently, and they uh, they they admired me for what they called being off the grid because I don't have an iPhone. I have an iPod Touch because I like listening to music all the time, but mm. uh, I don't have an actual iPhone. And they thought that was impressive. You you think they'd be making fun of me, but they, it was the opposite. They kind of huh. I think they're kind of they envied you. They're, they're kind of longing for that uh, you know pre iPhone world themselves. Yeah. Uh, Before anyone could find you 24 hours a day. I really do resent that. I like uh, not being able to be contacted, especially if I'm outside. You know, I don't want yeah. people just calling me out of the blue. You know, you got to shut it off sometimes. You got to cut right, the link. Right. right, exactly. Well, if you've got any new listeners who don't know us yet, that's Mike over there. That's me. I'm Mike. Yeah. Without the iPhone. And, I'm uh, the guy without the iPhone and with the CDs. And all the CDs. Yeah. And I'm Russ over here. I've got CDs. I've got other things too. He's got quite a bit of CDs, yeah. Yeah, like, I like my there. CDs. Yeah. I yeah. like streaming too. Uh, gadgets and things. I like streaming. It's an, it's good enough. It's good yeah. for, you know. It's good as CD now uh, in some cases. So Yeah. But uh, it's nice to have something to touch and hold yes. and read. And read too. Yeah. I have I have something funny about this too. Um, I was listening to some uh, recent, uh, I guess, rock popular music recordings. I was, today I was listening to uh, a new the new Kurt Vile album. He's not the uh, musical theater composer uh -huh. from Germany, but the uh, 
guitarist from Philadelphia. He spells his name oh. V I L E. Oh, okay, I see. And there's a there's an album by a band called uh, The War on Drugs, also from Philadelphia. So I was listening to them today, and I noticed that like popular music with me, any kind of popular, it doesn't register unless I'm listening to it like on a CD on a nice stereo. Because I'll mm. go outside and I'll have the headphones on and I'll play it through the iPod Touch, and it's kind of A I F F, but nevertheless, uh, there's there's something there's some dimension that comes out of the stereo that kind of mm. makes it kind of stick more there's a it's and it's a, a dimensionality thing too i can kind of feel there's something more solid feel about in your the chest. sound yeah yeah i know, what yeah, you I don't know. maybe that's it i don't know yeah. but uh i, I need the so. i need the cds i will um you know i'm going that way and they're coming back apparently people are listening to cds more yeah yeah according to that's the uh, press but who knows yeah you know. otherwise uh, after the apocalypse there won't be anything left to identify yeah. our musical civilization right I'm going to have something to say about CDs when we get to the jazz section of tonight's uh, podcast. So, oh, okay. You know, yeah. yeah. Media so remind me. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into our program for tonight, I want to remind our listeners and also let any new listeners know that in the episode description, You'll find links to all the music we'll talk about. There's uh, Spotify and Apple there, direct streaming links. Uh, also, you can get all the music in one place on Deezer. That's the streaming platform we like best. You get your music in CD quality. Uh, you can listen to the podcast there as well. Uh, just look for us, Adult Music Podcast. And uh, on Deezer, we also put up the recordings for next week, uh, right after the podcast goes up. So if you want to see the music... For the upcoming episode, you can check that out a week early. Uh, and if you can't see the links clearly on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on, uh, please pop over to our host, Podbean, and everything's easy to uh, connect to and see there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. Uh, take a minute, give us a ranking or write a review. That will help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. That helps us grow our audience. And thanks to you, we've been in Apple uh, music commentary yeah, recommendations that? for a few weeks straight now, which is nice. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. I put the Deezer playlist post there uh, every week early. And you can leave us a message or a comment. You can see our handsome faces there uh, if you take a look. And uh, you can also contact us directly the old way by email uh, yeah. at adultmusicpodcast, all one word at gmail.com. Any questions or comments, we'd like to hear from you. Yeah, you can also write comments on our Facebook page. I just wanted to mention, I put up the uh, three CDs that I'm going to be talking about today, a photo of them on the Facebook page. And it got only one hit. And I think that hit was... Me, <laughs> I think I'm the only one that looked at it. So <laughs> give give us a t look at our pages, make us feel good at least. You know, just even if you don't want to, just go there. <laughs> yeah, I put up a video of that uh, Barionda recording from last week. Uh, oh, that was good. One. Yeah. yeah. So I might start doing that uh, when I find associated videos of the recordings we have. I'll post them up there. Uh, yeah, I have a growing list of. Uh, jazz recordings that we've talked about that I really liked that aren't available on CDs. I keep them on the list in case they ever appear in the future. But I just want to say to any uh, jazz artists out there, um, you know, if, I know it's I know it's hard to do you, if you're just starting out or something like that, but put your music out on CD if you can, right? because uh, years down the line, it'll still be on my shelf, whereas I'll probably forget about it if it's just in some, you know... Um, streaming service you know right. which i might not even be registered for by then you know so that's right 
There and it'll go. go on to the next generation. Yeah, I could hand it to my um <laughs> no one in my family wants anything. <laughs> Although my my brother Richard, the guy who you know whose uh, shop designed the uh, our logo, uh, seems to be listening more and more. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, what he's um you know what he's getting out of this. You know what I mean? Because his, his daughter dances, so he listens to a lot of classical music because of her, and I think he just wants to know something about it. Hmm. But I'm wondering if he actually listens to it actively now. You know, apart from you know. The dance things. Speaking of dance things, I think we've got a. Uh, we're starting out with a little dance thing tonight. Are we ready to get into these um, recordings? I think we're ready to get into them. Starting out with the classical world. Yeah, and our first recording. Now we have a um, new segment that we said that we. This is one of our two segments. Um, That's right. Uh, the uh, Ranitsky releases, and those are those words are both spelled with a W for those of you mm-hmm. keeping score at home. And uh, we we even have a theme now for this uh, Ranitsky releases um, uh, segment of the program. So Russ, can you uh, play the theme? Play me All in. All right, I know Daniel's going to love this. And there it is. Okay. Whenever you hear that, you know we're going to talk about a Ranitsky recording. That's right. The a Ranitsky recording. Hunt. That's W R E C O R D I N G. Okay. That's right. <laughs> so, for any new listeners to the podcast, uh, in one of our early episodes, I think it was episode 10. 10. It was episode 10. Um, yeah. I had uncharacteristically found a classical recording and said, Hey, Mike, what about this? And I said, I never heard of that. And I said, Neither have I. So, let's listen to it. <laughs> it was uh, the first volume of Ranitsky recordings, uh, yeah. kind of a composer who uh, has been overlooked uh, through history, and yeah. uh, now is uh, his music is making a comeback in a big way. Yeah, he was, and that, that's all really thanks to uh, Daniel Bernardson, who's uh, one of the, he may be the chief scholar of uh, Ranitsky's uh, music. And I got to tell you, this has been a, quite a surprising and uh, enjoyable journey listening to uh, his music. Um, the first three... Uh, Naxos has been releasing these um, most of these albums. We, we've also got some on other labels now, which is also really nice to see. But the uh, Naxos uh, series continues. Uh, the first three dealt with um, symphonies, and we liked uh, Volume Three the best. If you just kind of go out and pick one up, just mm. <laughs> random. We thought that was the 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 most energetic sounding one. I remember with Volume One, I thought it was kind of lacking in energy, but um, it got better as they went. But the thing is. Uh, this is we have now, we now have Orchestral Works four volume four on mm-hmm. Naxos, and this is a um, what, what would you call this? this is a pantomime or sort of a pantomime dance ballet piece. Uh, pantomime yeah, yeah this, I, I guess a pantomime would be like a light ballet or just kind of right. it's called uh, Das Waldmädchen Das Waldmädchen the Forest Maiden. It's and uh, there's also a piece called Pastoral and Alamand at the end. This is once again by the Czech Chamber Philharmonic Orchestra Pardubis, conducted by Marek Stilek. And we, of course, interviewed both of them uh, way back uh, last year in 2021. Uh, this yeah. is a uh, volume four in the series, and it was recorded in uh, 2020. Before we started this podcast, they have so they must have so much stuff in the can there. That <laughs> <laughs> how much more yeah. of this is there? Uh, you know, come on. I, I want to just encourage Naxos Records to get this orchestra back in the studio, recording more yeah. Ranitsky. It's actually really picking up quite a lot because this is a, another really excellent recording. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to say right away, right at the beginning, um, great performance, re- good energy throughout. 
and a great recording as well. This is really hits on all on all levels. Um, okay, so the pantomime das Waldmädchen. Um, it's about it's a little over an hour long. It's and it's the music for this ballet pantomime. Um, I'm gonna really go heavily into Daniel's uh, notes, his very detailed um, notes about this pantomime. You really not left. Nothing is really left to the imagination because he he really fills in all of the uh, the details of the story. You, you, don't, you usually don't get things these this detailed with a a ballet performance and you're left wondering what's happening at what point. Right. Not here with the the ballet notes. He's uh, filled it all in. And I'll say that um, he mm-hmm. sent us the score, which yeah. has a performance notes, and uh, that's not available on the Renitsky project page yet, but I think it says it will be there soon. So I'll put up the link uh, if you're more interested uh, to find out about uh, Renitsky as a composer and all the other available recordings, I'll put up the link for the Renitsky project on the page. It's just renitsky.com. And I think the score will be up there soon uh, if you want to follow along uh, on your own. Yeah, so Renitsky, um, he... um... He lived at around Mozart and young Beethoven's time, and uh, he knew both of them, and as well as Haydn. So all the all the big shots of the day, and he was apparently one of them as well. It's just that we just don't remember his uh, music, but he had his um, benefactors, as did many people then. And uh, it's due to uh, due to them, especially one um, who, who I got to scroll down here. Empress Marie Therese uh, especially liked his music and collected a lot of it. So we're getting a lot of it from her collection long ago. All right. This particular piece, Das Waldmation, is pretty much almost the entire album. There's, there's one more short piece at the end. Um, this is a work that premiered at uh, the Kertner, oh man, Kertner Theater in Vienna on... 23 September, September 23rd, 1796, the day before my birthday. Well, 200 years before I was born. <laughs> but, uh, so they knew I was coming, I like to think. Anyway, and uh, it was a part of a double bill. Um, the other one was a play, I think. And it quickly became an audience favorite, was performed 130 times in the following years, uh, which is a lot. Okay. Yeah. It's actually it's even a lot today. If um, you're putting on a play, think about it. If you're in Broadway in New York, um, how off, how long do most musicals go? Maybe <laughs> a few months, mm. uh, you know. But uh, unless they become super popular, and uh, so 130 performances is quite a lot. Then, um, in the notes, Daniel compares it to um, Beethoven's um, uh, what is it? Uh, Creatures of Prometheus, um, mm. which only had about 28 performances. Which I guess is standard, but I don't think that was a successful stage work for Beethoven. Beethoven really wasn't a stage work composer. He also did an opera, which we now know very well, but I don't think that really drew lots of Maybe audiences to. Uh, Forest Maiden idea. Oh, did he? Oh, the Creatures of Prometheus? Which no, one? No, no, I mean, in this case, uh, yeah, maybe the, the, the idea. Forest Maiden, you know. Yeah. I, I hung out a lot in the woods, but I never saw any maidens in the forest so. yeah basically it's this is kind of the old story where uh the the maiden is in the woods living yeah, somehow the, the feral and, uh, girl these highly civilized royal people find her and bring her back and uh to civilization basically and it's um you know the the whole fascination with seeing the world through this wild girl's eyes 
there are a lot of stories like this. There's Romulus and Remus is sort of like this mm. in ancient Rome. You know, they even founded their um, city on a similar story. Anyway, the story basically involves um, Floreski, a Polish prince, Floreska, his consort. How convenient, huh? Mm. They both have almost the same name. Uh, Lovensky, who is uh, Floreska's brother, and also a Polish prince. Oh, he's also a Polish prince, Levensky. Okay, and uh, Azemia, who is the, uh, the the flower maiden, the Waldmädchen. She's a young maiden who was abducted from her parents as a baby, and she's grown up alone in the forests of Lithuania. <laughs> <laughs> nice setting. That's quite a setting. Uh, anyway. This sort of thing was really a, a big subject of fascination with people in this era and the Romantic era as well. Mm. Uh, there's also uh, minor characters, Petrushka, who is a con- Cossack hunter employed by Prince Floreski, and uh, Monsieur Sison, a dancing master, uh, chambermaids, hunters, attendants, etc. All right, anyway. Listening to this, I actually kind of wrote down uh, Daniel's notes in my notes so that I could kind of follow along with the action what was happening. Now, I should mention this um, ballet, or call it a, ballet, a pantomime, really, pantomime dance piece. It's a lot like um, a lot of 19th century ballets go, where the material doesn't really highlight the action. It just sort of serves as something for the story to sort of take place over so there are a lot of sort of sections that um you know they change to indicate like changes of moods but it doesn't do any painting there's no tone painting in this so that we uh like when somebody's like excited you know the music will get a little excitable but it doesn't really you know paint an excited a picture of an excited person really there's a few things that um yeah there are a few pick up like the call of the hunt on the horns that you can absolutely um, hear when she's um surprised by the clock movement and her dances in front of the mirror. Uh, you can sort right. of pick up the suggestions in the music. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so anyway, th- this uh, starts out with an overture, and right away, it's just uh, super charming. Uh, yeah. It's got this dancey, kind of Mozart-type theme. Like It actually sounds a bit like um, something he would do. Um, it's instantly appealing. I mean, you'll you'll be drawn into this right away. Um, I enjoyed that uh, the brass are used rather heavily in the opening. Uh, <laughs> you often complain that Mozart just doesn't really <laughs> use the brass much. You just have to like count for like uh, a yeah. hundred measures and then just kind of play one yep. note for a long time or something, you know. But uh, no, Ranitsky actually um, employs the brass uh, pretty heavily. He gives them a little bit of a workout for the period, anyway. I mean, yeah, this is some. Um- an exciting overture. I like the yeah. little, um, it's got these little dropping flute figures in the middle that are very kind of yeah. playful. And then yeah. it gives you a fake out right about two minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, the phrase is just clipped and doesn't finish. And then it goes back to the original theme. We've seen that in Ranitsky's music before, uh, little tricks that just kind mm. of make sure you're paying attention. Uh, <laughs> well, and, they kind of draw your attention. You know, They kind of surprise you. I enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, and uh, Ranitsky, one of the things he seems to be known for, and I'm really picking this up now too, is his uh, wind writing for wind instruments. Mm. It, it really stands out. It's uh, it's it's unusual, even for the period. It's it doesn't really seem to follow the uh, the standard uh, practices of you know what winds yeah. do. Like he'll isolate them, and they'll often have slightly contrapuntal lines. It's really interesting. 
There's a lot of interplay. Uh, there's some nice bassoon work throughout the score too. The bassoon really stands yeah. out. We also heard on the previous recordings and then here too, the flute and oboe sort of uh, playing off from each other in different sections right. is really nice. Good clarinets right. in here too. Uh, yeah. It's a kind of woodwind, uh, real good woodwind uh, exposition all through here. Well, what I've done here is I've written um, like Daniel's kind of like summary of the um, the uh, story into my mm. notes. And then I tried to write my notes in and it all became a big confusing mess. I was mess. doing something so- similar. <laughs> 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 but so I'm going to tell the story and just make occasional comments on the music. I, I, that's That'll be the approach that I use here. So it's in three acts. And uh, this is the first act starts on track two. Um, in P- Prince Floreski's castle, the princess uh, arrives, and uh, we get this nice rushing theme that kind of reminded me a little bit of the Marriage of Figaro. It's got that kind of the, the when the the beginning of Marriage of Figaro when you hear um, Figaro singing Cinque Dieci's measuring the bed and stuff, which is very uh, titillating, of course. But uh, here we have um, <laughs> the princess beginning to dress, which I guess would be a similar. <laughs> kind of situation anyway we go on um to the next track uh the prince floreski that's um princess floreska's honey her husband enters um we hear hunting horns uh, accompanying him so we know he's ready to go on the hunt and uh the princess um is worried about him basically uh yeah she <laughs> so Let's see. Uh, he's got a. He's. We can hear that Prince Floreski is a real manly type. His uh, entrance music is solid and uh, have brass heavy. A lot of uh, lovely winds in this. Mostly flutes. He's gonna go on the hunt, even though his wife is telling him, "Oh, it's so dangerous." But anyway, we go on. Let's see. Let's skip ahead to track uh, six. That's um, a nine-minute musical section, and uh, we're in the forest now. And Azemia, we see her. She's the the forest maiden, she's sleeping on a bed of moss, and uh, we hear the gentle theme with rustic tones to indicate her uh, situation, so she's a little uh, more rustic, not terribly refined. Uh, she wakes up, says her morning prayer, so like, she, somehow, she lived in the woods her whole life, but she knows how to pray, that's, uh, mm. that's pretty good, and goes to pick fruit for her breakfast, and then we get a dancier theme um, you know, for this part. Uh, the hunting party, we know they're approaching when we hear the hunting horns. And um, Azemia gets worried and hides in a cave. Let's see. Floreski appears. Let's see. And uh, one of their um, party, is cha- Petrushka, is chased by a bear and climbs a tree. The, the other hunters attack the bear. And Pl- Prince Levinsky, who is Floreska's brother, arrives and persecutes the bear out of sight. Petrushka comes down from the tree and discovers Azemia in her cave. Um, they both become scared, run away in opposite directions, and uh, Petrushka returns with P- Prince Floreski and describes how he encountered a spectacular two-legged beast. Mm. <laughs> this is um, where there's a really nice uh, cello part in this one. I said there's a pretty rustic theme sounding on thick-sounding strings. I said perhaps a viola, but it could be a cello in its higher end. I wasn't really sure. Um, there's some good sounds in this whole section. Anyway, the prince is moved by her. This is um, Floreski, and uh, he tries to inspire her trust. And there's there's a lot of like little stuff going on. But the main part of the story is that Levinsky sees her, and uh, Floreski explains who she is, and she starts to like Levinsky. 
and um, she tells her story. Uh, they give her a sleeping potion. Oh, man. <laughs> she gets roofied for like 200 years before this became a thing. And uh, they carry her off back to the um, castle. They want to show her, bring her back to civilization. Anyway. Yeah, the music goes through kind of like a lot of dancing interplay. And then you read yeah. that I, in the score, like she takes a sleeping and then like pill. <laughs> and then you can hear the, the drowsiness uh, come right. in in the music as it kind of... <laughs> Yeah, the music sort of quietens down to end act one. I, I imagine that is the closing of her eyes to blackness. And then we get the second act on track nine. Uh, here is, we're in the princess's chamber again, and the chambermaids dance, uh, waiting for the arrival of their mistress. And this is another cheerful musical setting. Um, by the way, um, Marek Stilek is um, conducting this with high energy all the way through. This sounds really, you know, like a... Uh, an enthusiastic performance. It's really enjoyable. Uh, never never slackens um, in the entire 70, 65 minutes of it. It's really good. Yeah, they sound really pumped to play this. Um, yeah. The, the rhythms have lots of energy. Um, it's It still comes it comes across as yeah. elegant. Uh, you know, the, the parts are well kind of played so that they're easy to kind of pick out. It's, it's just f- fantastic. So the princess is still worried. The honey party returns. And... Um, the princess uh, is told about the strange find that has been made, and she is moved by the girl's plight and goes to uh, greet everybody. And we get some lively major key bubbling melodies until about a minute and 10 seconds when hesitations in the rhythm indicate the princess's curiosity, I'm guessing. Um, the theater transforms into another room in the castle for track 11. Uh, as Azam- Azemia sleeps on an ottoman in an alcove. <laughs> she still <laughs> hasn't recovered from her... Um, from her uh, sleeping draft um and the princess the princes and the princess complicate her, contemplate her with interest while she starts stirring the others hide themselves i guess they want her to wake up uh, alone and uh this has a lovely long-held brass harmony at this point uh let's see another long section comes in track 12 Azemia is by herself and she uh, walks around the rooms and she's surprised. The mirrors, like as you mentioned earlier, astonish her. And uh, there's a carefulness to the rhythm and melody here as though to indicate caution. And all the material here has a really strong rhythmic profile. That's really true throughout the Mm -hmm. work because it is a dance work after all. Um, Her curiosity is piqued by a pendulum clock. And the music here was really charming. there are pizzicati in the bass that indicated to me the swinging of the clock's pendulum. Now, I'm, <laughs> I didn't actually follow the score in this part, so I'm just kind of trying to pull that out from the notes. So I'm hoping that's what that is. It's a really lovely section of the score. Yeah, I like um, the um, bassoon triplets here um, because they keep that rhythm. But uh, Renitsky uses the, the bassoon kind of beautifully in some places. But here, I think it gets that sort of playfulness of a... Right. Odd sound because they're um, you know just in, using that timbre brings out you know you can imagine uh, her dancing around these mirrors and doing silly things having never yeah. seen them before. It must be it would be a fun thing to watch. I hope somebody will put it on one day. Mm. Um, she uh, okay so Azemia expresses her satisfaction, tries to win the favor of the princess by whose kindness and grace she is enthralled. Um, the brass, by the way, at the end of this uh, of track twelve, have a lot to do, and it's it's really kind of exciting too, especially for this period. Um, those those brass, those valveless horns at the time, they must yeah. 
you know, they must have been rough to, uh, this must have been rough to play mm. actually at the time. Okay. So we go on, uh, this is, there's a little, um, like detour from the main story when a dancing master comes in, uh, Monsieur Sisson, as we heard at the beginning, and he, uh, has been called to give Azemia more suitable manners. And Azemia finds it, Azemia finds it difficult to understand the usefulness of this ridiculous figure. <laughs> And uh, he's given a graceful, if slightly pedantic, theme. It's kind of more repetitive than usual, and it's, and it's careful in its repetitiveness. Um, I guess if they were rewriting this um, today, the uh, the ridiculous character would probably be a podcaster like ourselves. <laughs> so, dancing. We are the dancing masters of modern times. Anyway. We'll have to get you a wig to do that part. <laughs> yeah, I could use a wig. <laughs> anyway. Um. Yeah. She she gets a lesson. She gets she gets bored. She starts. Uh. She gives into outbreaks of wildness. The dancing master gets exasperated with her. But then, Levinsky comes in and teaches her to dance with kindness and love. And she responds to that. And the dancing master leaves in a huff. Anyway, she uh, Zemia uh admires the beautiful dress of the princess and wants a similar gown and. It, this is promised to her, and uh, a ball is arranged, and that brings us to the third act, which takes place in a ballroom, starting from track 15. Um, there are a lot of dances here. Um, there's a lot of um, lovely detail in this whole section, by the way. There are a lot of there are a string of uh, dances, so people can show off. And Azemia arrives in a splendid Polish costume. And uh, everybody says how beautiful she is. And um, Levinsky's admiration has constantly been growing. Remarks that a bit more nobility would raise her charms even further. And she, of course, scoffs at him, but tries to mimic the noble grace of the princess. This must be amusing to watch for the audience of the time, Mm -hmm. um, who were probably all nobles themselves. Um, The rhythm becomes fleeter and lighter here, and uh, Levinsky can no longer suppress his passion. He... Goes for it, declares his love, and then the musicians begin the uh, Russian dance. Levinsky seizes the opportunity to profess his feelings. This is rather a rustic-sounding dance. It's elegant mm. with rough, accented chords occasionally heard in the strings. Uh, the ball continues um, with a Polish dance. Um, this track continues with the ternary form dances. There are a lot of these ABA sort of structures to these dances. They'd be like this. There'll be a dance to a one dance sandwiching like. Uh, like a middle, like more mm. elegant dance in this. The princess gives a necklace to Azemia, and uh, Azemia wants to um, return the gesture, and she produces a medallion, which apparently was given to her before she uh, went into the forest. She gives it to the princess, and she explains it's her most treasured possession um, because she's had it since her earliest childhood. Uh, the medallion springs open when the princess is looking at it, and there's a miniature painting inside, which uh, discloses that Azemia is a princess of the house of Floreski, abducted in her childhood. <laughs> oh, she's part of the family. She's not even just a noble. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it stops after we get... This, this is... Um, I mean, I'm kind of talking about this lightly, but most uh, stories of the period were kind of like this. There was a lot of um, sort of um, coincidental... Mm-hmm. Events happening in a lot of these uh, stories of the time. If you watch, if you watch a lot of or listen to a lot of early opera, too, 
This happens a lot. People find out they're really brother and sister, you know, or things like that. Kind of like Star Wars, right? <laughs> Princess Leia and Luke <laughs> just keeps going on. Uh, the, let's see. The bassoon comes back here in track 18. Mm. Uh, creative orchestration here by Renitsky. I like the... There was some playing on the bridge of the strings on track 19 at the beginning of 2.30, so it gets that sort of like... Uh, so not full sound. It's kind of ghostly. It's got a scrapey sort of sound. Mm. And that quickly changes to the full string sound. It kind of like sort of thickens as they move away, as the string, the bows move away from the bridge. Nice effect there. I should have checked the score and seen what the the indication was for that. I really like this track a lot. Yeah. it um, yeah. When the strings get full, it really envelops you with the sound on here. Yeah. It was a nice effect. Um, I'm wondering if that was Ranitsky's or Marek's. <laughs> you know effect anyway there's a variation on the dance we've heard um everybody's happy and uh uh he requests levinsky requests azemia's hand after um seeing the painting in the miniature painting inside the uh the medallion and um azemia agrees to marry him uh their their happiness their forthcoming betrothal are celebrated by the court a very energetic and brief section indicates that we have a happy ending and we as the listeners are as elated as Prince Levinsky and Azemia are. This is a lovely score full of simple yet appealing ideas and lovely and occasionally ear-catching, intriguing details. Actually, there are quite a lot of ear-catching, intriguing details. Um, and that's also thanks to uh, Marek Stilek for drawing those details out. This is sure to charm the listener. It's not as... Uh, symphonies aren't really complicated, but this isn't as complicated as... um. Let's say a symphony, the themes don't develop. They're really kind of more, there are a lot of ABA forms, ternary forms. And the music is very simple. So we get to hear Renitsky's um, sort of uh, melodic and um, orchestral invention here more than any sort of um, harmonic development. You know, it's it's a dance piece. So it's it's really not going to, you know, go for the intellect too much they, they want you watching what's on the stage but um we can hear that he's got great melodic ideas and a lot of uh, fantastic uh orchestral ideas too particularly with the winds and the brass i was yeah. really impressed by this uh really good piece yeah, it's a lot of fun right. the rhythmic movements uh constantly changing if you look at the score and you'll see when there's a scene change or something he'll change the the key there too so you'll suddenly be in a new key which sort of matches the idea that now you're going to have a different background and sort of yeah. cleanse the visual palette of uh, what you're seeing for the story so you can imagine how that would work together and as you said the uh, choice of instruments and the interplay uh, really brings out you know the special timbres of the especially the wind instruments along with uh, the story and then the constant motion the, the meters are always changing that's what impressed me a lot you know from one yeah. dance to another and then you're in cut time then you're in three-quarter time the motion yeah. is constantly um changing and even though as you say compositionally yeah and the textures as well even yeah. when we stick to like that three-four time he'll often um like reorchestrate to like a, a melody like you'll have like the two halves of a melody and then you'll hear it again and sections of the melody will be reorchestrated each time you hear mm. them. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, it was really, my ear was constantly uh, drawn in by that as well. Okay, let's go on to the last um, 
work on this. This is a track 22, a pastoral and alemans. This is a separate work. Um, this was found in uh, Empress Marie Therese's collection. Ranitsky was one of her favorite composers. This work um, in the A section, it's again a ternary form, A, B, A, and the outer sections imitate the sound of a hurdy-gurdy. Um, and there's a danceable allemande in the B section. Now, a hurdy-gurdy, you can go to YouTube and see what that looks like. It's kind of like this giant sort of... Um, viola looking thing it's kind of so in size it's somewhere between a viola and a cello and you can i guess you hold it on your lap and uh you crank it and um you can change the uh tones it's playing by these buttons that are on the side of it i kind of and it, the the thing about it is because you crank it it's uh constantly legato there's no real kind of breath or pause so this it's not quite a mechanical sound but it kind of is you know close to that you know the mm. the cranking of it kind of makes it sound like you know like it's not breathing like it's kind of like some kind of machine um it's a pretty intriguing sound though and uh gets a uh constant legato in its changing notes um um uh here marek Stilek provides a deep outline of the rhythm of the hurdy-gurdy section. I mean, there's no doubt that, that this is what's being imitated here. Uh, it comes across as a rustic dance. The hurdy-gurdy sounds very rustic. In fact, is. Um, these, these, they're kind of easy to play. So, um, you know, they were, they were good for, you know, village dances, I guess, back in the day. And that's what we hear here. Um, the orchestra is, his um, interpretation is well characterized. He's, he gets a vibrato-less and droning quality to the orchestra. Now, remember, they're imitating this instrument. They are not mechanical themselves, but they're <laughs> imitating this sound quite well. Um the Aleman starts at uh, 2 minutes and 21 seconds. It's pretty easy to uh, spot because there's a pause before it. And it's pretty fast for an Aleman. I'm judging by uh, the speeds that the uh, box Alemans are played by in the Baroque era settings. Um, it glides along satisfyingly. And after a pause, the hurdy-gurdy comes back at 5 minutes and 7 seconds. So another charming pastoral-sounding piece. All in all, a real winner. Um, between this and the uh, the third kind of installment in the Naxo series, it's kind of hard to judge. I kind of like the symphonies better just because there's more kind of harmonic ideas mm. happening in them. But the creativity in this really kind of drew me in too. I enjoyed this a lot. Um, so yeah, thumbs up for this. Give it a listen. It's uh, it's just a really happy recording all around. And, you know, should cheer you up on a rainy day. It's really packed with energy. The orchestra sounds really confident and full sounding. Um, really, you know, the, the rhythms are tight and they move along with great energy. And Merrick's conducting is really precise. Uh, it hits all the changes in the program. Uh, yeah. So much so that if you follow the score and read, you can imagine what's happening. Right. And, you know, yeah. he has to be aware of all of these things that would be going on as well. Uh, so I thought... You know, that's a really good uh, job of stitching all these themes together that have to work around this story. Um, yeah, so the playing yeah. and conducting is great. And the the sonics are fabulous on this recording. Yeah. It's yeah, super they are. clear. Uh, you can hear everything and it's very balanced as well. Um, yeah. And Mark Stilek, Mark Stilek also, he draw, he's, he's really good at drawing out the... Uh, 
the idiosyncrasies of the score. Like if there's like mm-hmm. a, a dissonance, he'll give it a slight accent so they, to make sure that you, it stands out and that you hear it. Yeah. You know, he, does, he doesn't just kind of play over them yeah. as, as we sometimes hear. I think he really likes this score. It just, it just sounds like everybody's enjoying themselves. Sounds like here. they're all having fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah. a winner in Ranitsky releases. So you've got four of those, and you've also got the Oboe Works, which we did a few weeks back. Uh, you can check out. And then mm-hmm. if you haven't heard our interview, uh, check out Interview 3 on Adult Music if you want to uh, hear uh, Merrick's comments on uh, Ranitsky Works and also uh, Daniel Bernardson's uh, background and more insight there. And as I said, check out the link to... Uh, the Renitsky project to get some more information about other upcoming recordings. Yeah, I think there's one coming. You said on Harmonia Mundi pretty soon. Is yeah, that right? it's out. It's yeah. out. So, okay, it's not on a CD though, is it? Uh, it wasn't available yet last time I checked. But yeah, this yeah. just drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a big CD fan. I mean, I'll listen to it on the streaming, but still, I like to sit in front of the stereo. Okay, next we have. Uh, one of uh, Ranitsky's pals, Ludwig van Beethoven. You might have heard of him. <laughs> we have a new recording <laughs> of uh, Violin Sonatas by um, Beethoven. Um, these are Sonatas number one in D major, Opus 12, number one. The famous number five in F major, the Spring Sonata. I was kind of glad that was on here. I kind of wanted to hear that again. Appropriate for this time of year. And the very last of the uh, Violin Sonatas, number 10, in G major, Opus 96. These are played by one of my favorite violinists, Rachel Podger, on violin, and she's um, playing with, I'm not going to say accompanied by, because Beethoven's violin sonata is the piano, is very much an equal partner here. Uh, Christopher Glynn on a an Erard Forte piano from 1840. Um, mm. So, after Beethoven died, really. Beethoven died in 1827, so this um, piano is manufactured after his death. This is on the Channel Classics label, and it's an SACD. So I got that uh, extra dimension this week. I was kind of happy about Mm -hmm. that. I've got a few of those coming up, actually. There's one next week, too. Anyway, um, I was kind of curious to hear this. I had gone through um, Podger's um, Mozart series, and this is the uh, first release in what I'm guessing is going to be a traversal of the complete all 10 violin sonatas. Um, I, I doubt they'll only do these. One would hope not anyway. Anyway, we start with violin sonata number one in D major, opus 12, number one. First movement starts Allegro con brio. Uh, con brio, right? So it's going to be energetic, but it starts pretty slowly, <laughs> surprisingly, mm-hmm. with a thick violin sound and rather light piano. Um, so, well, the, the Erard is um, kind of does have a light sound. When you listen to this piano, by the way, you want to try to imagine Chopin's piano music because he favored the Erard piano. And uh, his playing at the salons would have sounded something like this, you know, if, but he wouldn't have played Beethoven because he, he hated everyone except um, <laughs> Mozart and Bach. <laughs> I actually thought the uh, piano mm-hmm. recording is done really well on this. Um, yeah, recording. It's clear, and there's, you know, we often comment that, that we don't like the piano sound on some recordings. I thought they got just enough room sound, uh, yeah, in here. Yeah, so mm. it it wasn't too dry or close, and it didn't have you know get lost in sort of a reverby thing. Just enough to create a sense of space 
while you could still hear all the tones of the piano clearly. I, I thought you know, that was captured really well. Right. The first movement here it sounded a bit more um, subdued than most performances do of this first movement. Mm -hmm. um, the piano sound is very pretty, I said. It's sort of yeah. like a light version of a modern piano. Mm -hmm. And as is the case in all of these sonatas, the piano is an equal part with the violin, as I mentioned, and has a lot of heavy playing to do on yeah. its own without the violin. Right. You know? But like I say, it's, uh, overall, I thought um, it's kind of a light but stately presentation yeah. of Beethoven. Uh, sometimes, you know, people can... Uh, inject maybe a little bit too much uh, heaviness into these kind yeah. of works, but not not the case. Uh, yeah, and this is an early work too. So it's yeah. like, I think from around 1798 or so. This performance brings out the classical Mozartian elements of the work and underplays the uh, Beethovenian touches like the Sforzati mm. and stuff like that, which are there, but they're not quite in full Beethoven mode yet. Um, the period instruments do reveal some pretty detail and quieter passages. And I like the way... Podger varies the sound on elements that repeat each time we hear them. Uh, she takes the repeat at the beginning and uh, varies her um, touch and her approach, and it's, it's, it just keeps the ear engaged. I really love it when uh, musicians do that. You already have this highly detailed music, and now you're getting you know, a different angle of it. All right, second movement, tema con variazioni. Uh, andante con moto. The piano plays the opening uh, by itself and has a bit of a rattle to some of its strings when it plays it. Uh, Padre then joins in and plays the thematic melody. The first variation, the piano pretty much takes the lead as the violin does filigree work to accompany. The violin gets the lead in the next variation. And I like the way Padre varies her tone for expression again. Uh, the piano sets a very deliberate rhythm in this variation and accents the bass notes in a reassuring way. Um, one of the things I liked about Christopher Glynn's playing is that he he's paying attention to the um, the um, the beat. Let's say we're very aware of um, where the beat is landing. He's not just kind of it, it's not becoming sort of like a sort of um, I'm, the word that's coming to me is ghostly, but that's not really what I want to say. Mm. It's it doesn't just kind of glide through it, you know, where you don't know where the uh, the downbeat is. He he lands on it well enough that we can always tell where it is. So we get more of a sense of like this, this liveliness, this kind of brio to his playing. Um, mm. Yeah. We can hear the echo of the bass notes in the violins material. Uh, the next variation is a bit more aggressive. And how can we not hear that from Beethoven? Uh, the following one contrasts by being played quietly and the violin sighs out its material here. <sighs> Very nice. Ends quietly. Third movement, we get a lovely rondo theme. It's lively and dancey, and as I mentioned, Glynn really pulls out the rhythmic profile uh, very strongly, so that makes this really enjoyable. Uh, the duo are excellent at setting these rhythms so that we have a sense of beat and motion. Um, this has a this is a bit fast for this movement, I thought. So I thought the first movement was slow. This one's a little faster. They're trying to go for some new sort of. Um, interpretation here i guess um it sounds actually more appropriate played this way than slightly slower i liked this rondo section a lot uh, the episodes tend to be more emotional and i enjoyed podger's emoting on some of the phrases whereas once we get back to the rondo theme it's always kind of dancey and happy again you know um 
we, she stretches out the melody slightly for effect before a pause sometimes. She's got a lot of tonal colors, and she uses them judiciously. This is why I've enjoyed her playing for so many years. Um, and Glenn's sense of rhythm helps make this very appealing. All right. Onward to the very famous Spring Sonata, Violin Sonata Number no. 5 in F Major, Opus 24. Um, in the Allegro, this famous melody is taken quite fast. It's usually just rel- sort of relaxed, and you just kind of feel like you're walking around in with the breeze on you on this pleasant spring day. But uh, she takes this pretty fast, does Rachel Podger. Her tone is light, as is Glynn's. Um, I guess the fleetness possible on the Erard is being taken advantage of. Um, it's a lighter action. And um, this is a really interesting thing. The Erard piano, and there was another type of piano um, that were sort of in competition with each other of the time, and different composers favored the different pianos. And I think the Erard won, the one that Chopin used, because mm-hmm. people like uh, Mendelssohn and Hummel used a lighter-actioned piano, and they're... That made their works harder to play on a heavier action, and that's probably why we don't hear them as often these days. So, <laughs> the the instrument you choose, it's a it's a it's a crapshoot too. Anyway, there's a beautiful sense of balance in this um, movement. It's maintained in the fleeter, more dramatic passages, such as when the piano races up the scale and the violin takes uh, the scale back down. There's a neat transition into the repeat of the opening material just after 2 minutes and 25 seconds. And again, the approach is different in the repeat. I love that. It makes it so interesting. It sounds like the second time around, uh, it sounds more assured and confident, whereas the first time it sounded more like we were discovering something new. Like, you know, there's like a path, a path and then the path has gotten more worn and it's kind of played with more confidence the second time. Mm-hmm. At around 4 minutes and 40 seconds, the development is launched into without a pause. It's fairly brief and bold. The recapitulation comes just after 5 minutes and 30 seconds, so it's a very short development. And it sounds lighter after the development material, and also fast like the beginning. It's elegantly played throughout with a keen ear for detail. Uh, the rougher passages don't come across so roughly. These, these musicians are, aren't really trying to bring out those elements so much. Second movement, Adagio Molto Espressivo. Uh, The piano begins with its romantic-sounding melody. The violin adds some atmosphere, very quietly here. I'm really surprised at how well the Arard registers the melody of this um, particular movement. Um, I thought its light sort of sound would kind of... You wouldn't get the uh, legato necessary, but no. I could imagine what Chopin would have sounded like on one of these. The violin picks up the uh, melody in the next go-around with no vibrato, but uh, Padra is still sensitive in her playing. She does a kind of a subtle tapering of the sound to draw out expression. It's really nice. A subtle effect. The Arad has a pretty impressive booming bass note at 1 minute and 50 seconds. And the uh, material repeats with lots more ornaments this time. Very noticeable since Beethoven gives them accents in the score. And the trills at the end of the movement are also very quickly taken. Third movement, Scherzo, is fairly brief. It's got a jumpy melody with lots of sforzares, so, you know, these sort of accents off the beat. And um, those are played rather quietly. I mean, they're noticeable, but um, they're not accented strongly. The, it doesn't sound like you're kind of a, in a car speeding over a speed bump, as a lot <laughs> of performances do. They go over them a little more carefully. 
The middle section features fast scales, and again, ideal balance is maintained. Fourth movement rondo, and we get a real pastoral rondo here, a woodsy one. This is very quickly taken also, and all details register nicely. Uh, the two breathe nicely together and have good balance throughout, particularly in the departure from the rondo theme, when the piano has a lot of repeated notes under the violin's theme. Um, this, this is played pretty uniformly. The approach works well. You get a good sense of how the movement is shaped. Um, they pay attention to the form. After about 40, 4 minutes and 45 seconds, or rather they outline the form well, I should say, for the listener, so that the listener will notice it. After 4 minutes and 45 seconds, the maintaining of the rhythmic profile at speed is very impressive. These two highlight the rhythm exceptionally well. Finally, we get to the uh, final uh, violin sonata and um, Beethoven's last violin sonata, which he wrote in his heroic period around uh, the time of the Fifth Symphony. This was the... He would live another... Oh, boy, like 20 years almost, and um, wouldn't write another violin sonata. I always find that interesting. Anyway, this has a very long first movement, mostly because it's got a repeat that's a long um, exposition that where their repeat is taken, so it takes up quite a lot of time. Here in this movement, uh, the first movement, Padra has a sweet tone at the beginning, with its opening in the higher register of the instrument. Uh, the piano sets a steady rhythm, especially in the second theme, we get a sense of being on the waves with the 6-8 uh, rhythm and some nice transitions by Padra as she plays one chord just past, past the 1 minute and 30 second mark with a slight accent and discordant sound that draws attention to the change of character of the material. I really love it when uh, soloists act as a guide to the music for the listeners, mm. and she's really good at that. Um, the repeat is taken, and uh, that makes this a fairly long movement. Variations in tone and attack are heard, keeping things interesting. That's true throughout this entire um, album, uh, despite the same material. The transition to the development section happens just after the five-minute mark. It's very subtle, a key change to the minor that goes barely registered. It's a quick development section as the recapitulation returns after only a minute or so of development. Padre takes the double-stopped transition more smoothly this time. Interesting because there isn't a key change here. It's a nice idea. I, I mean the transition to the second theme in the recapitulation, by the way. Um, there isn't a key change here, so it's all in the same key mm. now. Because uh, the second theme changes to the main key as opposed to being in a different key at the beginning. Um, it's a nice idea. At 8 minutes and 50 seconds, a coda begins with stray themes we've heard before put together, leading to the final cadence. Second movement, Adagio Espressivo. The piano gets a long chordal introduction, which is then repeated more sensitively with the violin playing now a melody and now accompaniment. Padra here doesn't have a particularly beautiful tone, but it's lyrical and expressive. I mean, she's doing this on purpose. I don't mean to say she doesn't have a beautiful tone. Um... And I prefer her lyrical and expressive tone, actually, um, but I'll take the beautiful tone, too. The material doesn't stray far from its initial setting. Uh, the movement is song-like and brief at 5 minutes and 38 seconds. Third movement, scherzo, just as the adagio is about to resolve to its cadence, it explodes into this movement. So this, the first chord of this movement acts as the resolve for the um, second movement. The ryth rhythmic profile picks up a lot, and the players make sure you notice that. Uh, the middle section is more lyrical and dance-like. The opening material, a more deranged dance, 
returns for the last section. The fourth movement, Poco Allegretto, is a longish movement, eight minutes or so, that opens with a folk-like melody. Padre throws in a lot of slightly undertuned tones to her accompaniment to draw the ear and add a rustic feel, which is appropriate and bold. Um, we get a bolder variation next, with the piano hammering out three quick chords that the violin plays over. This seems a set of variations to me. The next one features the piano playing scalar material as the violin plays the melody. This particular section is ternary, and after the repeat of its quick chordal material, it goes to a gentler section where the piano plays a melody and the violin adds filigree. I've already lost track of what I'm talking about. I have to hear this piece to know. <laughs> Give it a listen so that you know. Maybe you can follow along that way. This gets traded off. Um, for the next go-around. I like the violin's uh, steady, almost bagpipe-like held tones as the piano plays the melodic material. Uh, we get a brief uh, folk-like theme. Then the material starts moving at relatively high speed as the duo trade off melodic and accompanying duties. There's a nice flourish by the violin towards the end, then the piano, and that ends the sections. We get a brief slow coda at the end to bring us to the final cadence, to which there's a sudden rush of energy. I must have been kind <laughs> of on my second drink by then or something. <laughs> All right. These are interesting recordings of these works. Um, not just the period sounds of the instruments, but the fresh sound, unromanticized interpretations make this recording draw the ear and puzzle over whether everything is there. Uh, rest assured, it is, and uh, more. I especially enjoyed hearing the rhythm of each movement thrown into high relief. Uh, rhythm is important in Beethoven, even when it's straightforward. And I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of this series. I liked this a lot. Two for tonight with Ranitsky and Beethoven. Yeah, I enjoyed this one too. I always like uh, Padre because um, I like her tone. And I can't say that yeah, of like all violinists. Uh, sometimes I get, yeah. I get fatigued from uh you she know, had, yeah she has more of a thick a thicker kind of like broad tone and it's got yeah. a nice kind of color to it you know yeah so i liked that and as i said i i liked the um the way the piano was recorded and it worked well with her mm. sound so i was hooked in from the tonal qualities from the beginning and then i just like the approach to uh beethoven as you say it's not uh kind of uh, indulgent or overdone approach uh, but i thought it was stately uh, and nuanced as you said uh, she brings a lot of extra kind of uh, variation when there's repeated material and attention to detail that's really nice i liked the emphasis on rhythm and precision yeah i like that too and the way they're really mm -hmm. locked together and i just thought overall a kind of classy uh, performance uh, that it doesn't uh, wear you out. It keeps drawing you in and keeps you interested to the end. And there's some nice little subtle details uh, in the performance right. that make it unique. And uh, yeah, I'd like to hear more of this series. Yeah, these, yeah, these well, these really overplayed works come up sounding fresh here. And that's really yeah uh, the highest compliment, I'd say. Very nice. Uh, all right, on to uh, the last uh, re recording. <laughs> I always try to uh, include a contemporary work. Uh, this one, sadly, isn't quite contemporary. It's uh, Johan Johansson. He was an Icelandic composer, born in 1969, making him four years younger than me, and tragically died in 2018. 
Um, He, uh, at the age of 48, the likely cause of death being a lethal combination of cocaine and flu medication. Well, I guess he died like a rock star. Wow. At least he didn't freeze to death. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this is the recording of his drone mass. And this is really making... uh, the rounds. It's getting quite a bit of press, this recording. Um, it's um, performed by the American Contemporary Music Ensemble, <laughs> who, um, who its abbreviation is ACME, <laughs> bringing up images of Wile E. Coyote, yeah. and, um, and Theater of Voices, conducted by Paul Hillier. So they're Everything well of known. the description of this is very bizarre. So... Uh, what do you mean? You know, drone mass, Iceland, Acme. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of like wondered what you'd gotten us into with this one. But I have to say, I ended up really enjoying this a lot more than I expected to. I liked it a lot, too. I, I, I should mention it's released by Deutsche Grammophon, so good for them for uh, championing. Yeah, taking a chance um, on this. Yeah, it's just sort of um, contemporary or close to contemporary composers okay mm. all right this um this i think this may have been the uh let me tell you a little about johansson he was icelandic as i mentioned and he wrote music for a wide variety of media including theater dance television and films i think he was best known as a film composer uh he blends traditional orchestration with contemporary electronic elements and that's exactly what we're going to get in this piece um he's He's still being mourned by the classical community. His compositional voice is considered a great loss. And um, this piece is um, one of the reasons why, too, because it's um, getting a lot of attention. The Drone Mass is an electroacoustic oratorio. An oratorio oh, well, is like a... Of course it is. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> because of course it yeah. is. An oratorio is a... Um, it's it's an unstaged opera basically okay so the singers there's a story being told and uh the singers aren't in costume or anything they're just standing and singing think of handel's messiah that's an oratorio it tells a story but it's it's a concert work um this piece can be seen as an exercise in what he calls i got i learned a new word this week apophenia which is the tendency of the human brain to draw connections between apparently unrelated things, uh, to find patterns and meanings where none was intended. And uh, well, if you just get on the internet and look at any <laughs> political post, you'll probably see lots of this. <laughs> I'm actually really good at this, but I try to do it in books and not in uh, um, coming up with conspiracy <laughs> theories like most people do. Anyway, this particular work was inspired by the musical concept of the drone, but also of flying drones currently used in warfare. So he's this is an example of this apophenia. Mm. So the drone bass, which is uh, just keeps going. I think of a Tibetan monks there, mm-hmm. and also we we call these uh, flying uh, death machines or were delivery machines that uh, Jeff Bezos <laughs> wants to use for Amazon drones. Can you imagine one of those things at your door delivering your package? I don't know. I think I'd be terrified. Have you ever flown one? I never have flown one. I've seen them though. People I got to fly them around. A funny story. I, I bought one for my nephew. Yeah. And of course I wanted to try it out too. And yeah. so I said, let's see how high it can go. So I got it <laughs> way up in the sky and upon, uh, 
descent, it I snagged it in a tree. Oh, <laughs> and then like a kite. Then <laughs> I tried to get it free by rapidly, um, f- you know, moving forward and reversing the propellers to cut through the leaves, and I ended up burning out the engines that we had to oh, get out of the tree which my nephew said thanks uncle russ <laughs> i broke his present that's what happens when I, you... I felt so bad i i got another one and i sent it from japan uh to him you know so no oh, cool anyway right. that was my drone experience well yeah you, you, yeah, you kind of owed it to him there <laughs> the, the thing that, the, about drones that when I saw them, there was somebody at the university flying one once, and mm. uh, I was looking up at this thing, and I'm saying, you know, if this thing just suddenly loses power, it's just going to f- come crashing down on someone's head. Yeah. Know, it's really scary. When they start to know. drop, they really yeah. drop. Um, so Yeah, they're heavy. Yeah. They're kind of big. I don't know. I think it's kind of a crazy thing. I could see why um, flying cars aren't really a good idea. No, no George no, Justin come, yet. <laughs> yeah. No, but they'll just, they'll just come crashing down on people, yeah. you know? All right. Back to the drone mass. Um, so the the work searches for unexpected connections between the texts, texts of the ancient Nag Hammadi scriptures, written in Coptic, I believe. And I'm not sure if that's true, actually. Anyway, never mind. Um and the this the, the, the sounds we hear are all sung in Coptic. I know that. Mm. And the distorted views of reality in the digital age. Oh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> no. Between the vocal polyphony of the Renaissance and the alien effects of Ableton software, a lot of um people use this. A lot of music people use Ableton software. I'm not really. I've never used it myself. I'm not really sure what it is, but it manipulates sound in some way. I think DJs use it too. More pro- record producers. And also between the beatific or malevolent eye that watches us from above. This may, reminded me of Sauron and the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> okay. He says whether God or machine. So that either God is watching us or a drone is spying on us. In other both. words, he's trying to make these connections. <laughs> and the long-held tones that paradoxically both ground a piece of music and enable it to take flight. Um, this piece is not a setting of the mass, so we shouldn't think of it that way though it does have religious texts in it that we don't understand because no texts are provided in the booklet note mm. and nor does he really want us to know what the words mean as i said they're sung in coptic and we could just guess that there's some sort of spiritual message so it all becomes but, cryptic yeah mm. i think it is anyway yeah um nor is it a piece that simply drones although i thought drones were present okay they're a recurring motif through the work Acme's director, Clarice Jensen, says the piece feels like holy minimalism. Think Arvo Pert, John Tavener, and Henrik Goretzky, um, whose music kind of suspends time and uh, repeats quite a lot. I thought there was a little Philip Glass in this, too, actually. A lot, um, of, a lot of concepts going on. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Into this. Um, yeah. And it, it's it's a it's a fairly pleasant listen, to be honest. Um, it's... It, it, Throws up a few challenges, but uh, yeah, you know, it it contains enough of traditional Western music uh, harmony and then sort of uh, development to give you something to hold on to. And mm. while it does shock in some places, it also satisfies a lot in others. So it it sort of uh, balances out expectation and surprise, really, yeah, with surprise and also some. Dist- 
quite disturbing things too. Uh, <laughs> so you get it all in one uh, I didn't, uh, here. I didn't really find it disturbing, but oh, we'll get just into a that couple couple th things that disturbed yeah. me. Uh, okay, uh, when we get to it, yeah. and point them out when they're there because I, I don't know. I just kind of I guess I listen to too much uh, Harrison Burt whistle to ever be disturbed <laughs> by so. a piece of music again. <laughs> uh, rest in peace, sir. Anyway, the drone mask. Uh, this guy too. God. The drone mask calls for a string quartet, eight voices, and electronics. Um, uh, let's see. So we start. It's a nine-movement work, and all the movements have titles. The first one is called uh, One is True. And this starts out sounding like the beginning of a Renaissance uh, mass with the word. It sounds to me like they're saying Kyrie here, which is Greek. Um, but uh, he says it's Coptic. I don't know. I got to take his word for it. Kyrie is um, uh, Lord, okay? So if if that's what they're saying. Um, beautifully sung melisma here. Gorgeous vocal quality. Theater of Voices have made many recordings, and we we expect this from them. There's a contrapuntal line in the lower women's voices. Uh, the men's voices are droning, and something more modern erupts from that with a thumping bass from the men while the women continue their melisma. An electronic droning sound fades in, and the women's voices become less distinct. There's a lot of this fading, and I, I get the impression this is being done in a mixing console. Although the, the when the voices kind of go down, I think they they fade naturally on their own. We can hear violins playing a contrasting line to the vocals. There are plucked strings in the mix, as well as the at the end. Okay, the movement is a gradual build-up to a forte, and by the end there's a thumping rhythm, uh, contemporary meets Renaissance, so he's built a bridge from that ancient era to the present day. Second, two, is apocryphal. That's the title of the second movement. There's a long pause before this movement starts, or I should say section, I shouldn't say movement here. It starts with gorgeous, quiet choral singing, both men and women, all singing in harmony, so that there aren't any contra con contrapuntal lines at this point. Uh, a soaring high woman's voice comes in, which kind of reminded me a bit of the high voice in Allegre, Allegri's Miserere. Give that a listen on your um, streaming service. And it sounds really gentle. The rhythm gently rocks back and forth. This reminded me a little bit of Goretzky, really. Um, there are vibratoless strings under the voices, imitating them, the voices. The high woman's voice comes in again, quietly soaring. The movement lulls one into a contemplative state. And there you are in that contemplative state. And the third movement starts. Triptych in mass. This starts with an aggressive cello drone. Uh, it may be tempered by electronics. I wasn't really sure. There are string sounds bowing on harmonics. I always love that sound. Uh, the men's voices come in in a scattered harmony, entering at different times. Singing in harmony, however. This is appealing, but a bit more aggressive in its presentation. Each movement has been longer than the previous so far. This one clocks in at uh, 5 minutes 52 seconds. Women's voices begin to be heard intoning three syllables. A swirling electronics effect becomes more audible. There are a lot of slow crescendos in this work. This all fades, and a transition to an ostinato string line emerges, sounding very min minimalist, like Philip Glass or Henrik Goretzky. There's an octave, it doesn't sound like them, but it just kind of made me think of them. There's an octave harmony between bass instrument and a woman's voice, 
The men's chorus comes in with three-syllable enunciations, and this ends on a fade with the ostinato string line stopping on its last note. Fourth section, to fold and remain dormant. This movement is shorter at 4 minutes 31 seconds. It starts with an electronic wind sound with a bit of rattling distortion in it. Uh, like something being scraped. I was kind of wondering what this would sound like in headphones. I listened to it on speakers. Oh, I described it as a uh, an idling engine through exhaust pipes. <laughs> so, so, so did you hear this on headphones? Or yes, I did. Yeah. Okay, that's probably why I was yeah. wondering because I was thinking. I wonder, I bet this is kind of pretty harsh sounding on yeah, headphones. Can, I should probably listen to it that way. It's interesting. You get that kind of muffled sound at the end, but there's something rattling uh, up further, like the manifold has got a rattle or something. Right. Uh, very interesting uh, electronic yeah. sound, yeah. Yeah, there's some deep bass sound making its presence felt that uh, one minute, and that really was a chest cavity mm -hmm. sort of uh, feeling. This is an electronics-heavy movement. Uh, what sounds like a crackling live wire drones on as the choral voices fade in and out. And they do this naturally. This isn't like a mixing console. Yeah, they float through like waves on this one. Yeah, they, that takes a lot of skill to this. It's pretty impressive singing. The electronics fade at the end, and uh, we're hearing electronically altered harmonies at the end, perhaps from the voices as the movement fades. Fifth section, divine objects. This is the longest movement yet at uh, seven minutes, and it starts with a solo violin high up in its register. It's pale-sounding and vibratoless and plays an ostinato figure. Ostinato is a repeating you know, figure. Think of any rock and roll bass line. A lower string instrument, the cello, plays a vibratoless melody of long-held tones, and both are electronically altered a bit. They sound slicker than usual. There's a lot of holy minimalism here of the Goretzky or Arvo Pert sort. This section ends at uh, 2 minutes and 45 seconds. There's a pause, and the entire texture comes back with women's voices singing quietly in harmony. It's very pretty. The voices uh, gradually crescendo. Uh, gradual is a key word in describing how this piece moves. Everything moves very slowly, and you almost don't notice it happening. But it's, um, yeah, so it kind of creeps up on you, really. Uh, so the uh, crescendo happens gradually until the voices are up front in the audio field. Track six, the low drone of circulating blood diminishes with time. <laughs> this title put me <laughs> off, and the movement itself kind of sounds like that too. This starts with electronics and a distorted rattling sound electronically produced. Siren-like rising sounds dominate. They're mildly disturbing. But I didn't find this off-putting. It contrasts with what we've heard already. Seven, Moral Vacuums. <laughs> Some <laughs> title. Boy. It's like the world we live in. Is that <laughs> moral like Moral Vacuum. A Holy what? Hoover? Or... <laughs> no, the Unholy Hoover. No, the Holy Hoover, yeah. yeah. They... <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Wow, got to give Russ credit for that. The Holy Hoover. Nice. <laughs> All right. This movement starts with scattered... Entries from the women's voices and a high string sound, uh, which is an altered violin. It's vibratoless, very quiet and gentle, and sounds soothing after the previous movement. The men's chorus comes in at some point, and the entire vocal ensemble singing in harmony gradually crescendo until they're the dominant sound. 
There are repeating string figures accompanying them. It reminds me of those old Renaissance paintings of cherubs playing violas. You know, I kind of always imagined the sound would sound like this. Like it would be vibratoless. It would be a little rough, you know, because they're, they're little cherubs. They're kids, you know. There are electronic gurglings to be heard, too. Mm. By the end, the voices have begun to decrescendo and fade out again. Only the women's voices remain at the end. Section 8, Take the Night Air. Don't mind if I do. This has electronics fading in with uh, altered soprano voices or electronics sounding like them. There are human female voices punctuating the texture with a rising staccato vocal line. The electronics grow louder and more distorted as the piece moves on, and men's voices are soon heard with the women singing the same upward-moving staccato line. Last section, the mountain view, the majesty of the snow-clad peaks from a place of contemplation and reflection. Now, from that title, you think this is going to be like a new age sounding (laughs) movement. It's the longest movement in the piece, and it begins with the choral voices, both men and women putting together harmonic sounds like they're building blocks. Uh, There's a lot of bending downwards of the notes being sung, Mm. so they kind of like, you know, swooping kind of sounds. And I'm wondering if it's a natural effect produced by the singers or an effect produced by electronics on the voices. I'm not really sure. We do hear a lot of downward bending electronics in this movement. The entire droning texture fades and there are downward bending siren-like electronic string sounds. In the viola and cello range, oh, in the viola and cello range there are electronic string sounds. Vocals come back and continue as before over this new electronic texture. The electronics drop out at one point, and we're left with just the voices singing their striking harmonies on syllabic sounds. That's a really beautiful moment when the Mm. electronics suddenly disappear. I really enjoyed that. The electronic strings come back and start diving into lower frequencies under the voices again. All in all, it's a meditative movement and really a meditative piece, though with disturbances. So that's the end of the work, and I thought this was uh, a moving piece and a satisfying one. It, it, it had a, an effect on me. I, you know, it, it moved me a bit. Um, it's ideal for, one, for when one needs to calm down. So it's meditative as well. I think hearing it lowered my heart rate. <laughs> so <laughs> that's good. I could have done listened to this or taken ashwagandha. I, I chose this one. <laughs> um, it's very beautiful in parts. And there are a lot of those uh, parts. Uh, I tend to hear electronics as some voice from beyond in works like these, something divine, not of this world. You can't really put your finger on it. You can't like grasp it. It's not tangible, even though uh, they're disturbing. I think that uh, that's what those forces would seem like to us. Think about um, Rainer Maria Rilke's angels in the Duino elegies, right? They're kind of a little terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would enjoy hearing this piece live. It must be quite an experience. Anyway, yeah, it's a little adventurous, but I would recommend this too. And um, I was very happy with all three classical recordings that we listened to this week. I like this one a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, and, well, I just thought it was going to be weird because of the title and all these descriptions. And then I, generally, I'm not a fan of, you know, mixing electronics with... Uh, classical music for sure and uh, less and less in jazz too but somehow in here it was an intriguing combination and what pulled it through to me is as you said 
the beautiful parts are extremely beautiful. Yeah. Um, some of the sort of intervals and angelic like female voices are uh, really yeah, they're really wonderful in here. Um the disturbing ones are these kind of uh repeating dropping pitches. I, I think the one that yeah. sort in of the last got movement, me like... most well no, the one is uh the last foul wind I ever knew. That one um it has these um, lower male voices that have these falling trading intervals uh, between them. And it started to make <laughs> me get like car sick when I was listening to those a little bit. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So that one was, um, you know, kind of uh, really disturbing. But, <laughs> you know, I made, made up for that. Uh, I think maybe the prettiest one was uh, Divine Objects Part 2. It develops this kind of... Uh, almost folky pentatonic theme in the female voices and just the layer of tones in their voices is really beautiful. Uh, so there's these really shining little uh, lights of kind of pure, beautiful sound in there too. You know, I, I need to mention, I think the reason you found this piece more disturbing than I did was because you heard movements that I didn't hear because I'm now on Deezer and, uh, there are nine tracks on the CD, which I listened to, and Deezer has 11 tracks, and there are two extra oh. sections. I hadn't heard that one. So, who That's, knew? I, I guess so, I should... Yeah, usually it's the other way around. The CD gets the extra tracks, but so not in this Deezer case. Deezer has tracks that aren't on the CD. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Which is really strange. All right. Uh, Divine Objects is in two parts. Well, right. that yeah, might part be... part one and part two. Let me just take a look at this, what I have here. Divine Objects... Oh, yeah, they combined them on the CD. So I okay. heard everything you heard except that one movement, the last foul wind I ever knew. Oh. It's just the extent. I missed the disturbing stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was Go the most figure. disturbing. And it, yeah. the last one. Um, Un unless uh, it's, it, wait, let me see. Unless it's included. No, nah, it's not. Hmm. Um, unless um, movement four to fold and remain dormant is like, uh, yeah, it's not. Hmm. Wait. That's odd. Yeah, it's it's missing from the CD. That's odd. That's hmm. weird. Yeah, usually it's the other way around. Uh, I mean, Deezer yeah. is quite good, but I have found uh, a few recordings where there's something missing or out of order, uh, and I usually report it yeah. to them. Uh, That's really weird. I wonder because it's it's short enough. I mean, they could have uh, yeah. easily put it in. Huh. I wonder if it's somehow incorporated, like as part of a another movement. Let me see. I just want to see the triptych mass. It doesn't say. Okay. I don't know. Well. Anyway. There you go. An anomaly. It's a mystery. Uh, yeah, a mystery. An anomaly. I wonder why they did that. I'm disturbed now. <laughs> it's uh, it was pretty interesting. Uh, when you're in a mood for something a little bit different, uh, this was um, an interesting hour spent with uh, unexpected sounds, sometimes soothing and sometimes uh, surprising. Yeah. All right. All right. Interesting classical week. It was an issue. Next week will be an interesting classical week as well. And uh, moving on to jazz, I've got a solitary theme for this episode. Mallet maestros hitting things with sticks uh, to make interesting sounds. Uh, Mike and I are both fans of vibraphone, uh, an instrument that at one time was quite popular in jazz, uh, featured a lot. We've done a few vibraphone recordings uh, 
on adult music. But, uh, you know, in recent years, we haven't uh, heard a lot of vibes, but it sounds like uh, it's getting a resurgence. And uh, on my list of recordings, had a number of vibraphone things showing up. So I thought, well, let's put them together and see what we've got. And uh, so I've got three very different recordings. Actually, the first one we're going to talk about is not vibraphone at all, but rather it's more analog and primitive ancestor, the marimba. Hmm. And uh, so we're going to start out with an appropriately titled recording, The Color of Wood, because uh, the marimba, unlike its uh, newer relative, the vibraphone, is uh, just a bunch of wooden things that we hit with mallets. Wooden bars. Yeah, wooden Mm. bars, rosewood, I believe. And, uh, you know, you often uh, hear it, you know, you hear marimba in uh, classical music too. Uh, It has a big disadvantage compared to the vibraphone of not having much sustain. So you hit that note and uh, it disappears pretty quickly. Uh, So you're kind of limited in some ways with uh, the effects you can get out of it. But we have a real mallet maestro here, Tom Collier. He has a really long career, about 60 years he's been uh, playing. Uh, He's also an academic. He was the uh, director of percussion studies at the University of Washington School of Music from 1980 to 2016. Uh, And he was also a professor of percussion and jazz studies. Uh, As a performer, he's got a really impressive resume playing with uh, such names uh, in various genres here. We've got Eddie Daniels, the great clarinetist, uh, Ry Cooter, Earl Hines, Roger Kellaway, Don Gruss, and Frank Zappa, Victor <laughs> Feldman. Uh, let's see who else. Ernie Watts, Cal uh, Jader, Shelley Mann, the great jazz drummer, uh, Buddy DeFranco, another uh, jazz clarinetist, Diane Schur, Peggy Lee, vocalists, uh, Natalie Cole, add in there too, uh, Bobby Shu. Great uh, jazz trumpeter. Sammy Davis Jr., Barbara Streisand, Johnny Mathis, Olivia Newton-John, the Beach Boys, wow. the Mills Brothers, Della Reese. The guys uh, played <laughs> played around. He, uh, he must be exceptionally people. good to have played with some yeah. of these people who are really demanding. You yeah. know? So here, um, we've got a jazz-based marimba album. Uh, and a lot of it is uh, new original compositions written specifically for the marimba here. Uh, a few older kind of original tunes that he had too, and a couple standards or jazz uh, and pop tunes thrown in. So marimba is probably more common in classical music uh, to be recorded. And there's not a lot of jazz marimba albums, uh, you know, com- just completely marimba. So uh, this is kind of a adventurous uh concept uh, to do all marimba and i should say on this some of the tracks are a single track recording just uh, mm-hmm. call your on marimba but there are some where he's uh, playing along with himself with uh two three or up to four uh overdubbed tracks uh, so i was to- wondering if there were other players yeah. on this album so yeah. Like, yeah i knew it. but it's all him overdubbed it's, right it's all him there's, okay I yeah. was wondering and i thought we had like a baritone sax situation like from last week or something right no no it's just him yeah, yeah. and if you've watched um vibes or marimba being played uh you know there's two 
techniques really you can use uh, just a single mallet in each hand and you know you can, you're hitting individual notes and then there's two mallets in each hand uh, and I've always wondered how they get those intervals spaced out you know the mallets coming out like in a Y shape and uh, I guess it's just a sense you develop like on any instrument so you could get up to four notes at a time uh, but there's a lot more going on than that on some of these cuts uh, in any case uh, it's all done on marimba by a single performer uh, and I think he does add a little tambourine also on one of the tracks uh, here just for a little touch uh, anyway we start out <clears throat> with the title track the color of wood hmm. this one it's kind of made of rhythmic riffs and chromatic patterns that cross back and forth. Uh, it works into a jazzy melody line uh, over chords. Uh, I'm guessing this is one that has overdubs because there's a lot going on here. It becomes really hypnotic, uh, but it stays interesting. Uh, the rhythmic precision is very impressive uh, for a solo performer uh, because, you know, he's playing, uh, it's a percussion instrument, but he's not keeping time per se, as you would having a drummer. And there's a lot going on that locks in uh, really tightly here. And we've got uh, kind of a little suite of pieces, uh, five pieces uh, that are part of five reflections on wood, uh, beginning mm -hmm. with a portrait of Cheryl. This is uh, kind of starts with a rhythmic static chord that sets a basis for these little peppered figures that develop into another rhythmic line and share a melody on the top of that. Uh, there's some impressive fast 16th notes that give the impression of sustain in the harmonies. And the melody lines are like uh, f really fast machine gun fire. So because mm -hmm. you don't get much sustain on that, he sort of compensates for that with rapid strikes of the same note or other notes, uh, which end up, you know, giving that machine gun type effect. Uh, but in order to draw out sort of more extended sounds from the marimba, you've got to keep hitting it. Uh, the second piece in the reflections on wood is a sister's radiant painting. This one's kind of interesting. It's some spaced out syncopated chords that create some anticipation. There's a sparse line that turns into a slow rolling figures. And it gets a pentatonic feel to the notes that give a kind of orientalism uh, suggestion to it. Uh, figures of different rhythms enter and exit with space giving a kind of impressionistic feeling. Uh, I got the sense from this, he's outlining the different parts of a painting, sort of like moving mm -hmm. on to a different area of the scene rather than creating a uh, linear narrative uh, that's kind of the impression mm. I got in sound that it's moving around uh, this painting the next uh, number three in the reflections is portrait of a scarlet flower this is a pretty rubato flowing melody line that has a lot of intervals and uh, intriguing harmonies as well the next one number four shelling at horsehead bay it starts with an ostinato uh, lower riff intro and it turns into a 12 bar blues actually but with some different descending chord changes uh, that mix it up and it doesn't land back on the tonic but rather propels it into the next chorus uh, this one has to be multiple tracks as well because he keeps that 
ostinato riff going. Then he adds chords on top of that, and there's a melody line on top of that all marimba. So no one has enough arms or mallets to do that all on its own. But it's quite an right. interesting effect uh, with this odd blues here. And the final piece in the Five Reflections is Ode to a Sunset. This one also gets an impressionistic feel with bass notes starting rising figures, uh, kind of like a Debussy uh, kind of uh, kind of mm. rising tones. It's quite sparse, mostly with one note at a time, short chord hits uh, between up and down runs. It works into some rolling trills before it returns to the beginning rising figures again. This one's quite pretty. Yeah. And we've got a interesting title, Dance of the Avaricious Dolt. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. That one, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a very rhythmic uh, 6 or 12-8 modal dance. I'm not sure how they're grouped, um, but the rhythm's interesting. There's a lot of cross rhythms going on and some blazing mallet work here. Uh, again, he's got a bass riff, chord patterns, and a melody line all going on, so it must be multi-tracked, but very technically impressive. Uh, after that, we're going to go to a cover tune uh, by the great uh, Freddie Hubbard, my trumpet hero when I was young. I got a chance to meet in person. Uh, one of his uh, lovely compositions called Little Sunflower. Uh, this is a really pretty tune, and I like what he's done with it here. He's got a lazy bass riff that uh, he invents for the tune. He brings out the harmonic twists uh, under the endearing melody. Uh, then he plays a jazzy solo, uh, hinting at some bluesy ideas and then he gets a little more adventurous with the uh, harmonic ideas in his solo. He returns to the melody once again in the middle and solos more softly. And then the rift changes up at the end as it fades away. It's just a pretty tune, uh, but he does uh, nice service to the melody. Track nine, Galvanic Juncture. Uh, another original, uh, starts rubato, gains motion, exploring a theme over some pretty minor chords. There are lots of intervals and arpeggios along the way, and the tempo changes up to match Collier's ideas with some pauses in between those ideas. Uh, this one sounds like a one-track uh, tune. I think he's doing this all uh, just in one go. Now we've got the first of Strange Choice of Covers, we're going to go a little country uh, here. Hank Williams, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Uh, this one starts out with a little rising and falling riff to get the old country tune going. Collier plays the melody harmonized sparsely, uh, interspersing that original opening riff uh, in between phrases. He keeps the loping feel uh, into his improvisation, uh, hinting some bluesy phrases and a little kind of galloping rhythm he throws in uh, like a little horse uh, motif there and he finishes off with another run through the melody yeah this was kind of yeah it was an, it was an odd interpretation i thought yeah. i was kind of trying to listen for the uh the melody and uh, yeah it's hard to identify i thought yeah it's hard to get some twang on uh, marimba <laughs> the country right, twang right. it's an odd odd choice right uh, next, we've got uh, Genesee, and I assume this is not about our old beer from New York, <laughs> because it uh, <laughs> it's actually quite pretty. Uh, it's another rubato one. It's uh, lush, pretty harmonies. Collier keeps this one rather soft, highlighting the rich chords. It does get 
a little bit more animated with some running lines midway through the piece. Uh, track 12, Hopscotch. This one's a fun rhythmic piece. It gets kind of a calypso feel. The fast running melody lines and punching syncopated chords uh, he places underneath that. The intro and outro sections feel like they have seven beat phrases um, that it sort of jumps into the next phrase. So that creates anticipation moving forward, but that changes in once it gets into the main uh, tune. Track 13, I Haven't Seen the Rain. <laughs> I think that's a takeoff on John Fogarty, probably. Yeah, Have right. I want to know. Clear what a revival. Seen the rain. Uh, yeah. This is kind of an impressionistic piece. Uh, it begins with high intervals that get faster, like raindrops falling uh, at the beginning of a storm. Uh, it develops into a very linear rolling piece with waves of gentle sound that come out. And then there's an ending flurry that slows up again like uh, raindrops uh, at the end of a storm. It's kind of charming and picturesque. Yeah. 14. <laughs> the owls seem what they want. <laughs> I was trying to figure out <laughs> yeah, what that meant. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, this one uh, starts with some low rhythmic alternating chords that make a hypnotic setting for a melody and some jamming above. Midway through, the chords get more subdivided and faster for a bit, and Collier's improvisations also get more animated. They calm again uh, to a heartbeat pulse, only to speed up once more as do the solo lines. In the chords end, he finishes it up with some echoey hits and a final low tone. And we're going to end up the recording with another odd choice of cover tunes. Uh, Roy Orbison and Joel Melson's Crying. Uh, he presents this in a way, uh, starting out, that he stretches out the rhythm of this famous melody. Uh, at the start, you might not recognize it um, because the rhythm is unusual until he hits uh, the higher phrase in the first part of the melody. Uh, then it will become familiar. Uh, single sparse notes and minimalistic playing of the melody becomes more animated as he improvises over it. Uh, he returns with a harmonized version of the melody, uh, then adding a rhythmic accompaniment that sounds like a giant music box unwinding <laughs> as the tension uh, leaves its spring. So this is a unusual recording with all marimba. It might be a little bit mallet overdose, uh, one instrument. Yeah, I, I, that's what I thought about it actually. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, maybe of you know main instrument or uh, main interest to percussionists and uh, marimba players, just because of the interesting sort of uh, development that goes into multiple tracks here and getting the most out of marimba. But I, I found it uh, kind of interesting and uh, something I wouldn't normally listen to. Uh, a marimba all by itself, but uh, he seems to be an accepted master of this instrument. So it was nice to step into a, a little world where it's just, uh, you know, felt covered tips striking uh, wood and what kind of music you can uh, get out of that. And uh, so I, it was like an enchanted little uh, fairy tale land of percussive sound for me. And uh, yeah, something different. Yeah, yeah he gets some. Um... Uh, he, he gets a lot of different 
sounds out of the instrument too, including hmm. um, one that sounds like there's no attack. He's able to kind of like just kind of get the sound without the attack, which I thought was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. My introduction to um, the marimba came from recordings of Keiko Abe, one of the great virtuosos of the instrument. And she played all these really exciting pieces. And the pieces he's recorded here, um, the arrangements, they kind of come across, across more as like um, salon pieces. Like they're all like three or four minutes long. Think... Um, like uh, Claire de Lune by Debussy mm. or the Arabesque or things like that. So they're not really harmonically, you know, like challenging or anything like that. They're pleasant, basically, mm. all of these. They're rhythmically exciting at times. Um, I, th- I just thought that um, there, there was a little, yeah, the, the sound didn't really change all that much as the instrument, as the uh, recording went on. You did hear layers of the, mm. uh, the instrument. Um, he has 15 tracks on this album, which makes it a pretty long album. And I guess I could have listened to it like one or two tracks of it at a time. And he probably wanted to, you know, get these right. recordings out of him and things like that. I don't think this is an album that you listen to all in one sitting as I did, which was probably <laughs> a mistake. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it was a little too much. But the the playing is excellent on this. Um, yeah. Well, I should say, you know, probably this is probably a Corona project. He was locked in yeah. a room with his marimba, and he said, "Okay, yeah. let me play something. Let me play myself over that, and then let me add another part on it." And because uh, right. he has, if you're interested, uh, he has. Uh, as I said, he's played with all these other greats. He also plays vibraphone uh, as well, mainly. And mm. uh, you know, he's he's actually even uh, he's uh, getting up there in years. He he's got a few recordings out in the past couple of years as well. Uh, I just picked mm. up on this one because it was uh, the newest thing here. So, um, yeah, maybe uh, too much marimba for some. But I think uh, marimba players will love it. I think yeah. he, he probably shows off a lot of techniques that they want to. Yeah. Anyway, I thought know, I'd include know. that in for a little variety. And yeah. uh, we're going to shift over back to the main instrument that's used uh, in jazz. The jazz days, instrument. The vibes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, got a debut recording. Not, not used often enough, I think. Not, not often enough, but hopefully we'll yeah. hear more. Uh, two very contrasting uh, recordings uh, on Vibes, uh, but we're going to start with the first recording of a uh, vibraphonist uh, originally from Greece, uh, Dimitris Angelicus. Uh, yeah. His recording, Long Way Home. And, uh, well, it's on the record label P-K, but that's not the letter P. That's the uh, Greek alphabet uh, oh my P. God. So it's, yeah. f- it's phi. Phi, but I guess they pronounce it as P if it's uh. in the capital. This is the capital. Oh. So um, okay. we often see the lowercase version. Um, and uh, I guess it, it's also used as a number, like 80 in Greek but it looks really weird in a regular computer font. So when well, you see it's all it there, Greek to me, Russ. Yeah, it's all Greek. <laughs> and these names are going to get you here too. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, let's see the background of Angelicus here. He's a uh, son of a Greek trumpet player and arranger. Uh, he started to make a career for himself in Europe with a number of Greek orchestras. Uh, and uh, then he came to Philadelphia on a Fulbright uh, he got a master's degree uh, at the University of the Arts, uh, studying uh, vibraphone. And he also came to New York to study with uh, Christos 
Raphaelidis, vibraphonist, mm-hmm. uh, who had been a student of uh, Angelicus's father. Uh, and uh, he was his first inspiration uh, for the jazz vibraphone. So I, I guess he started out mainly as a classical player. Um, and then he uh, studied with a number of other vibe players. Uh, after that, he spent a year in China uh, recording some, or working rather with uh, Asian musicians uh, and teaching and performing with Chinese musicians. And uh, from those experiences, he's put together this uh, recording here, Long Way Home. He's got a rhythm section team here along with him that works out to be pretty interesting. Um, uh, the pieces here tell a story with uh, inspirations particular to his home country of Greece and uh, also his experience of immersing himself in the culture of American jazz. And, uh, well, it comes out to be a really interesting experience. Um, so we've got himself, Demetrius Angelicus, on vibraphone, uh, George Crontraforis on piano, Kimon Karotsis on bass. There's a lot of Greeks here. Mm. <laughs> Even they're all yeah. And that they can really play, though. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good record. And it's an really un-Greek album. sounding Jason Waster on yeah. drums. The Odd Man Out. The Odd Man Out. Um, mm. Now, I should say, uh, the uh, Crontraforis on piano, he's actually on roads most of the time here. And, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, on the vibraphone, if you know how the vibraphone works as, you know, the, the marimba, as we were saying, you're basically hitting wood. That's all you got. Uh, but the vibraphone is actually, it's an electronic instrument. Uh, if, I don't know if listeners know, but we, we used to have one when I was in high school. I'd like to, I like to play around with it, you know, so you've got a couple pedals. And so one is a mute pedal, you know, that actually holds uh, a mute on the bar. So if you, you just hit it, it won't get any sustain at all. So it sounds like a xylophone or something almost. If you take the uh-huh. mute off, the, the tone will ring out for the natural duration. But there's an, another pedal that controls the rotor. So underneath the, the metal box on the vibraphone, mm-hmm. you've got these tubes and there's a, a resonator so you've got a rod that goes through them all and little circular discs that rotate, you know, uh, that are on a, actually a little, um, what do I say? There's a pulley there and a belt that drives that. So you get mm-hmm. that kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a tremolo vib- vibrato thing uh, going. Uh, we combine that with uh, the sort of uh, sounds you get from a Rhodes piano, you could end up with a wash of sound competing with each other. Oh, cool. Uh, but that doesn't happen in this recording. They they really uh, use those kind of uh, enveloping tones quite well for a wash of sound that I thought was attractive. Uh, and we've got an interesting uh, group of compositions. So let's take a look at what we've got here. We're going to start with an original a tune called Murphy, not a very Greek sounding name. Sounds like some Irishman at the bar. Uh, (laughs) But uh, this is cool. It's a syncopated and boppy original tune. The bass and vibes double parts of the melody to a very cool effect. Uh, Then the Rhodes 
uh, joins in too. There's some nice Rhodes and bass unison counter lines uh, in sections too. So I, I like how they're doubling up these parts uh, as they trade off. Uh, the tonal mm. combination of vibes and Rhodes is very interesting. Uh, Angelicus comes charging out for a solo first. He's got a good swing feel, nice intensity to his playing. They work through the melody again, and uh, Karotsis is up for a bass solo, getting up high with some double stops too. Uh, very cool. Waster gets some drum time over a vampy interlude, and it hits a new rising R&B-type groove uh, that comes out of this jazz feel uh, in the drums and bass. Uh, Contraforce uh, Contra is up for an acoustic piano solo then. Uh, he makes it funky and rhythmic. Uh, you want him to keep going, but nope, it fades out. <laughs> uh, anyway, you're off to a high-energy start. Yeah, I nope. thought the... Um... Who who was playing during the fade? There, there was a new instrument that came in, I thought, and uh, yeah, the piano starts soloing. Yeah, and he doesn't piano, get yeah. much. They just no. fade him yeah. out. I thought that yeah. was really weird. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I was disappointed. He was um, soloing well. He was he was interesting. As were yeah, yeah. as was everyone else. Yeah, it was they could track. Let him play out for more there. I thought. I uh, know we've got. Mm. I guess one of our Greek inspired. Uh, Titles Ulysses Journey, um, a solo vibes intro here with a music box-like melody. Uh, the mm. band joins in on a hit, and there's a groove started uh, with light cymbals and rising three-note bass patterns. Uh, Contraforce adds a layer of Rhodes chords underneath that. Then the melody modulates and goes through another section with vibes and keyboard in unison with uh, repeated rhythmic figures. It settles into a peaceful groove for Angelicus to start his solo here. His lines are very fluid. Also, he has a lot of nice uh, ornaments, uh, little trills like uh, pagiatura things. I think he got that from his classical background. He can add mm -hmm. those into his uh, improvisations nicely. They repeat the rhythmic melody section. There's a dropping away of everything for some high and straight-toned vibes enchantment. Uh, a new I use section. the word enchanting too for this section. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a new section over long bass tones starts to build up, and then Angelicus builds up some vibe phrases again. Uh, Contraforce takes over with some very funky Rhodes playing, and then they join together over the intense drumming of Waster, having arrived at the destination of the journey. Uh, mm. There's a sudden stop, and then it ends with some magical vibe tones and a final chord. Yeah. Uh, yeah, enchanting piece. It is like a little journey. You get, you feel the anticipation of setting out on a trek, and then the joy of uh, arriving at a place with it. Mm. Another original for track three, only for you. This is a lush, slow ballad. Uh, Karotsa's bass sounds fat under the swirling vibe melody and Rhodes chords. The melody is pretty and has a few attractive rhythmic hitches in it. Uh, so it sort of skips and uh, syncopates uh, to keep you on your toes. Contraforce gets phasery. I just made that up uh, on a Rhodes interlude uh, before the vibes are back and the tempo picks up. Uh, but it transforms again into a very meaty bass solo. Uh, this is a really good bass solo. It's got uh, double stops with bends. Uh, and some yeah, I said I said there are some cool bends in his solo too. Yeah. 
fast yeah. bluesy riffs. I mean, if you can think, you know, he's double stopping and bending. This guy must have like a grip, like a, you know, an iron claw or something. <laughs> recommend <laughs> shaking hands with him. Uh, but it sounds really cool. Uh, you don't you usually hear that. I remember I got to play like a an acoustic bass, and I had to like tape my two end fingers together in order to get a sound yeah. out of that because they're both too weak to push the string down. Yeah. It was really so, hard. Doing yeah. double stops and bending both of them. That's pretty impressive, and it sounds very cool. Um, uh, the beat is heavier after that, and then Angelicus joins in with some bluesy mallet work over the fat Rhodes chords and insistent hmm. drumming. Uh, it slows down and ends on an unexpected chord. Uh, this is a very cool piece. All right. Track four, Joe's Corner. Uh, this was a melody of descending notes and synchronized block chords on the vibes. Uh, bass and Rhodes move in step two, then adding their own unison answer tags. The drums fill in busy beats. Uh, there's a second section of the melody that contrasts with that first part. Uh, Angelicus solos over the undulating rhythmic or rhythm underneath that builds up and kind of bursts into a swing over the walking bass and furious cymbals. Uh, nice punctuated Rhodes chords again underneath. Uh, the rhythm transforms to something more freeform over repeated note uh, bass patterns and more straight rhythm drumming. Uh, it dissolves down for a uh, Contraforce to get started on a raucous piano solo, uh, Rhodes actually, that he brings the swing back into again. Uh, that runs into a repeat of the melody uh, first part of the melody as a vamp uh, for some explosive drumming and then uh, they let it run its course uh, bringing it down once more for some restrained vibe work and two flourishing holds at the end. Uh, another exciting uh, piece. Now we've got a cover of uh, another uh, jazz musician, uh, pianist Walter Bishop Jr.'s uh, Choral mm. Keys. Uh, this one starts with a super funky and fun bass line intro that takes it into kind of a Brazilian beat. Uh, and Angelicus gets tropical with the melody uh, that has some nice rhythmic accented surprises. Contraforce has a road solo with groovy lines and lots of fleet runs. And then Waster has some huge drum hits as Angelicus finds the blues at the beginning of his solo. Uh, he continues on showing some impressive speedy figures in an enthusiastic solo. I think I hear some Keith Jarrett happy grunting uh, behind <laughs> there. <laughs> the things in there, but why not? Uh, they're having a good time. They take the melody for another ride with a few embellishments and have a nice little vibes cadenza at the end. Um, track six, we're going to get uh, another cover of a Bill Evans tune very early. Vibes and Rhodes uh, work the intro together on this one, and then it gets waltzy with Angelicus carrying the melody in the mid-range of the vibes uh, of punctuated Rhodes chords in there too. Kurotsis keeps one bar beats on the bass and occasionally add triplets here. Uh, he's up for a solo first and Angelicus switches uh, to vibes for backing while the Rhodes drops out to keep the sound from getting too thick. Uh, Angelicus keeps a solo next and uh, he keeps the waltz feel swinging along 
And then uh, Contra Forest has a nice road solo with lilts and uh, cool intervals in it. They go through the melody again, vamp around for some fiery mallet work from Angelicus, uh, pressed by intense drumming from Waster before ending the tune. Uh, so a little Bill Evans tribute there. Track seven, Johnny the Liar. This is another original tune. It's a medium swinging song with some boppy alternative chords and quirky pauses in the melody line. Uh, there's a cool bass pickup and interlude bridge before it gets back to the melody and a solo on the vibes. Uh, Contraforce is on acoustic piano here that matches the more sort of uh, traditional bop mood of the tune. He takes a very swinging solo that builds up. He hammers out some bluesy figures at the end of it. Uh, they go around the chords with some stop time for Waster to get some drumming in. And there's a bass solo uh, for just one part of the verse, too, that breaks it up nicely. They go around the melody uh, and give Angelicus some more time to play with some hard driving backing. And then he gets a nice little vibes cadenza at the end before a bluesy finish. Uh, so another cool original tune. And we end up the whole recording. Uh, with one standard here, the old Jimmy Van Heusen polka dots and moonbeams. Uh, and this is a solo version for vibes. Uh, Angelicus plays it rubato, nice pauses, and no vibrato from the resonator, straight toned. Uh, he chooses some nice chord voicings uh, to harmonize along the way. Uh, towards the end, he gets a bit more rhythmic, uh, then a little bluesy finishes it off with some pretty stacked chord ideas. So, uh, yeah, great vibe playing, lots of energy, nice variety of material. We've got five originals, one standard, and two covers of jazz originals by jazz greats. The interplay is pleasing. They make the blend of vibes and roads work without letting the sound get murky or in the way of each other. Uh, good interplay and energy. Yeah, let's hear more from this guy. Uh, it's got a yeah. lot to offer. Yeah, I like this a lot too. Uh, it's one for the collection if it comes out on CD. So if you're listening out there, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Angelakis, I hope you'll release this on a CD so I can keep it forever. I liked it a lot. Yeah, um, I might get not this just one the vibes, too. Yeah, not just the vibes playing, but all the musicians. And I even uh, uh, isolated the bass. I liked him a lot. Uh, he stands out. Uh, I want to mention the last tune is uh, Polka Dots and Moonbeams and I just got to tell you a little thing about this I know this song from the Frank Sinatra version of it mm -hmm. and um, the lyric goes because I've heard oh, this yeah. a million this, times this one yeah. has always puzzled me too yeah he says suddenly I saw Polka Dots and Moonbeams all around a pug-nosed pug dream pug-nosed dream pug what the hell dream. is that well that's I think what they mean is they have the, one of those cute curvy noses that's really small and you know it's cute but whenever I hear the word pug nose I think of the dog called the yeah. pug with the smushed in face you know <laughs> so like what you know what's appealing about this I don't yeah, know and I've then, always wondered even that when too. I was a kid it always bothered me too I don't know yeah. <laughs> yep I've always worried about that line too yeah when, what, what year is this song from 30s maybe Ooh, 40s good yeah. good question it's yeah it's got to be 30s or 40s um yeah. let's find out you know because hmm. my first exposure to it um was you know just as a jazz instrumental uh when right. i was young then i think i heard like the four freshmen or someone sing it and um i was kind of like did they just say pug no stream 
you know. Um, <laughs> well, Frank Sinatra, you definitely hear him say it because he kind of he kind of hits it with an accent, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, let's see what he, he's very clear voice from. too. You understand every word he says. Yes, yeah, enunciates yeah. very clearly. Uh, Nineteen forty. Mm. There you go. And Sinatra did yeah, it first guess, with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, right? I guess Pug yeah. knows the things were. You don't know. I'm trying to think of another 40s expression. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those 40s expressions. I don't yeah, know. It just seems to not be that endearing, but hey, what do I Well, not, I not know, yeah. for our modern age, I guess. I don't know. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's like a cute little nose. I don't know. All right. We'll think anyway. of it that way. All right. It's a we'll nice... Get... But the, image, the polka dots and moonbeams image is nice, though. I like yeah, that. I do like that. Yeah. Moonbeams. Mm. Moonbeams. All right. We're going to end the... Blue Note record, speaking of. Yes. The uh, <laughs> major label here. Maestros with um, another vibraphone recording on Blue Note. Um, uh-oh, Mike, this is actually kind of a sweet... My vibe's sweet. Oh, you don't it, like... yeah, the entire thing is a sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's on uh, it's on Blue Note too, which kind of su- this whole concept kind of surprised me that they that they'd go for. I don't really know what Blue Note's um, image is these days. It's hard in the, to tell in the old these days, days. They were kind of more laid back, you know. They were kind of like yeah. the laid back jazz sort of. Yeah. But now, yeah, it's hard to tell. Anyway, we've got this uh, was a sweet, and uh, it's uh, it it suffered from 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 some s- sweetness, sweetness, shall we say, <laughs> if I can, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, this it is was a little uh, sweet, heavy, but it was okay. The new recording of uh, Joel Ross called "The Parable of the Poet." Now we've heard yeah. uh, Ross back in episode thirty-seven uh, as he was a uh, sideman in Jonathan Blake's "Homeward Bound," uh, which we liked a lot. Hmm. Uh, and also, this is his third album as a leader, uh, all on Blue Note. He's been busy, uh, Kingmaker in two thousand nineteen. And who are you in 2020? And so here he is uh, with 2022's The Parable of a Poet. Uh, Joel Ross on vibraphone, Craig Weinrib on drums, Rick Rosato on bass, Sean Mason on piano, Kalia Vendever on trombone, Maria Grand on tenor saxophone, Marky Hill on trumpet, Emmanuel Wilkins we've heard recently as well on alto saxophone. Yeah, right. The piano. Oh, and, he's a saxophone? Uh, okay. Yeah. Alto sax. And uh, on one track, right. I know. Okay. Gabrielle Garrow on flute. Hmm. And so we've got a suite of things with uh, sort of uh, religious overtones uh, here. Uh, this whole album, I should say, uh, in contrast to the previous more jazzy standard uh kind of fair is more atmospheric and uh, sort of uh, focusing yeah, this more was on a... tonal kind of development and uh, it's a suite as it goes through these yeah. different movements. Uh, and, 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 it, and it suffers from the yeah, <laughs> from qualities bit, yeah. that suites have. Yeah. <laughs> the reason we don't really listen to them. Yeah. Now, now I, I define... I, I don't want to say this about this album because it's this is not the case with this album. But my definition of a jazz suite is um, a jazz player's um, 
failed college graduation project <laughs> that that nevertheless allowed him to pass his courses. <laughs> the, the, which is fine, but the issue is that they uh they have to um yeah then they then decide to record it for posterity and uh then we all have to suffer when we listen to it <laughs> anyway. But that's not the case here. We're not suffering off this. Hmm. This, is, this isn't bad. It's just kind of a uh, and I remember when I was in college, because like, I had a friend uh, who was in music in college. I had to go to his. Um, he he, you know, he he had to he had his graduation performance, and he had all his friends go. You know, you want to support your friends, especially in college, so you go. Mm. And it was just this. It was this just totally pretentious thing that included like uh, poetry and music and like this interpretive dance. It was just that sounds <laughs> it was like really, a. That sounds like a Kyoto performance. Well, it was it was yeah. really horrific, but uh, yeah. I don't think he ever recorded it though or filmed it, so yeah. <laughs> it's a release anywhere. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I took one for the team. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it allows. And, and I told them uh, it was great afterwards. So I guess uh, oh. you know, I'm in a lower he circle. Probably, of health he probably wrote another one after he sold them. That yeah, he probably so. did. I didn't want to encourage him too much, but. Anyway, I think it, it, it it's a different format. It allows the, the uh, musicians and composer to break out of sort of the song structure format into something maybe a little bit more loose and then looking for, you know, a larger thematic arc of uh, progression through the material. And I, that's what he's aiming at here with these kind of uh, religious uh, ideas uh, going through here. And, uh, well, the name parable of the poet. Uh, so let's see where we start and end here. We begin with prayer. Uh, this is uh, credited just to Joel Ross's uh, composition only. Uh, Ross gives us a solo intro on the vibes with lots of ringing notes. Gradually, they take shape into a slow melody motif. Piano, bass, and drums come in and also find the motif. Uh, soft saxes, trumpet, and trombone enter join in around the melody. The motif figure mostly repeats, but there is a variation that goes to minor chords uh, for some contrast uh, in the line. Ross joins back in with the vibes for some little touches in there. Uh, the horns start to weave more lines and counter lines over the repeating figure, and then Ross improvises more as the horns form more arranged lines, and finally the focus turns to piano to close it out. Overall, it feels like a meditative prayer, uh, creating a feeling of warmth uh, from the tones. Yeah, I kind of felt like in this one, the, the vibrato produced by the uh, the vibraphone, it's a really slow mm. sort of um, uh, vibrato. It, that forms a lot of the musicality of this piece, which just goes to tell you that's a bit meditative. Yeah. You know, he kind of yeah. goes for the sound of the instruments really carrying this material. Yeah. This is really a big focus on uh, tonal palette uh, throughout this whole recording. Track mm. two is Guilt. Uh, composition credits go to Ross, uh, Rosado, Gabriel Garo, and uh, Sergio Tabanico, and I don't know who that is. He's not a performer on this recording. Uh, this one starts with a lonesome bass intro by Rosado. Uh, it develops into kind of a six-beat waltzing bass pattern. Weinrib adds light drumming. Ross comes in with soft vibe lines, and the piano adds little 
delicate touches before setting a rhythmic chord figure. The horns join in with soft legato lines. Flute and harmon mute trumpet tones uh, stand out in the mix. Grand gets a soft tenor sax solo over the dreamy mix, and the other horns come in with backing lines that continue on and swell. Ross adds vibraphone runs on top of this building sound. The rhythmic feel changes up from the waltz to a four-beat pattern uh, mysteriously as it progresses. Um, A sense of rhythmic urgency is developed with subdivided drumming and bluesy vibe and piano figures. Then the trumpet and trombone spin off some rapid improvised lines uh, as they go along too. It settles down for a quiet ending uh, with the warm flute tone standing out at the end. Uh, track three, Choices. Um, here, Hill starts this one with a solo trumpet intro, Marquis Hill, that is. After a minute of uh, solo exposition, he's joined by Grant's tenor sax that adds some uh, harmony to his longer notes. Uh, then a rumbling piano and bowed bass come in uh, and trombone also join to make a dark cloud of sound. Weinrib adds drum textures as the mass of sound clears back to just the horns. Then Ross joins in on vibes and slow a slow beat forms uh, with the drums and bass. And then the horns improvise lines with Hill's trumpet being the most prominent among them. It comes to a slow end with the horns phrasing together, uh, kind of a unified feel. Uh, we get to probably the most uh, intense track on the album, Whale, W-A-I-L. Mm. Uh, this one starts with rolling, tense piano chords and busy drumming, makes a setting for the intense sound of Wilkins's alto sax uh, that comes in on the rubato theme. Uh, it's a sad minor dirge feeling. Uh, the other horns uh, join in around him. Uh, Ross adds vibes to the slow moving procession vibes and piano are left alone over sparse drumming at about two and a half minutes wilkins comes back in with bone dry toned cries of phrases that are painfully spaced out uh sounds almost like gas gasps of air for death Hmm. uh Uh, I really like the effect that he gets uh, on that. Uh, The other horns add a contrasting kind of velvety backing. And then Wilkins' tone smooths out to sort of match what the other horns have created tonally. uh, But he spins off into more rapid, free-flowing lines uh, on the sax, alto sax there. And uh, Ross eventually joins in with some rapid vibe lines as well. Then things quiet down at the end with only... uh, Vandiver left on trombone, uh, playing lines over the piano and bass. Um, next, we've got uh, the impetus, and then in parentheses, to be and do better. Uh, Vandiver continues uh, on trombone, where she's sort of left off from the previous tune, carrying the melody over the piano to start this tune out. A bass joins in on the minor theme and gives some more rhythmic push uh, Vendever gets more sparse midway, uh, leaving Mason on the piano to develop a slow rhythmic riff for the horns to join over. Then the drums uh, get a slow beat uh, formed. 
Ross adds ringing tones on the vibes to the mix as it gets more of a harmonic progression going. Uh, it comes to a pause, returning the focus to some sweet tones by Vandiver, ending on an unresolved chord. Now we've got uh, a few more uh, religious kind of uh, implications here. Track six, Doxology, uh, starts with flitting tenor sax lines from Grand. Um, piano, bass, and busy drumming join in on a cycling progression of chords that builds up tension, but pulls Grand into more melodic ideas than she started out with on her own. The horns join in with lines under Grand, and then they make their own transition to a piano solo by Mason. Uh, Ross joins in then for some light backing as the horns return. Then he takes over the focus uh, with some rapid rhythmic vibraphone improvisations. The horns improvise underneath too, but it suddenly slows down and reduces the energy uh, coming to an end. Then we end up with Benediction. And <laughs> Mason starts this one out on piano with low chords and rhythmic higher repeating notes. It goes through some harmonic changes of big open chords. A slow beat in six forms as Ross drums and bass enter on a downbeat. Uh, the horns come in too with a warm moving line underneath and Ross solos on vibes above, keeping it in the middle and lower end of the range of the instrument this time. The horns noodle and doodle underneath the vibes as uh, the tune moves along and it starts to fade out. It's a long, slow fade to the end uh, as it goes out. And that's it. So the focus here is a lot on tone and texture. Uh, yeah. Ross is no show off, that's for sure. He gives mo <laughs> most of the spotlight goes to all of his sidemen, uh, and he seems to be, you know, focused mainly on creating an atmosphere uh, around his uh, kind of theme. Uh, there's a few moments of higher intensity, like uh, whale, uh, there. And there's a lot of interplay and improvisation on the lines. I get the idea this was constructed on a loose sort of uh, plan of lines and he encouraged the players especially the horns to add their own little ad-libs there as long as they create the overall mood uh, and impression of Russ's uh, vision of these songs here uh, yeah um, it's a sweet <laughs> as you said <laughs> um, not bad um, yeah. it's uh, it's very chilled and uh mellow uh yeah. there's improvisations and looseness going on it all sticks together but it, it it's generally a laid-back kind of uh, progression through these different themes i think i think one of the issues with the, the jazz suite is that when someone calls their piece a suite it, it kind of indicates that they want to say something to you that's a little heavier than what they're going to come up with in the moment say in an improvisation mm. so it's something they've kind of thought about and so it adds weight to that i don't think we like to hear too much weight in a jazz piece I and mean, save that mm. for like the big classical works right? right but this album i thought it was okay i mean i i enjoyed the heavy vibrato tone of the vibes i thought it was a really beautiful yeah. sound but the piece as a whole like the some, I thought it was kind of a downer. I mean, I kind of came out of it feeling a little <laughs> more unhappy than I was going in. Right. It wasn't sad, but it just kind of, 
it did it it didn't really lift my spirits at all. Good playing all around though. Everybody plays really well. Mm. And there were terrific moments also in the ensemble work and solos, but all in all I kinda didn't take to this much. Yeah, it's not you know? um it's not that it could be more exciting, I thought. Um, well, I think these yeah. that's his his sweet message is kind of a yeah I guess he wants to, he wants to be communicate his uh, view stuff, of God so. to us but I think yeah, uh, I, th- yeah. I, don't know. I think classical music is uh, actually better at that <laughs> you know it's yeah. kind of because the structure kind of helps I think anyway it's uh, enjoyable mm-hmm. for the thick palette of sounds uh, that develop uh, and it's nice you've got in the horns you've got a you know trombone tenor sax alto sax trumpet and flute uh in there so you get a rich kind of mixture of sounds uh so in that case uh, you know there's a lot of uh, tones uh, to listen to here uh my pick for the unexpected and happy find is uh Demetrius Angelicus yeah I like that too that was like, yeah. yeah I just saw that on uh one of my uh lists of things that come out from around the world and I thought uh, you know let's check this out and uh, so I was really happy to find that so that's my pick that probably will pass under the radar of most jazz listeners um, you know the uh, Joe Ross is uh, not bad uh, yeah. it's on Blue Note it's going to get a lot of attention um, you can check that out and for any percussionists or real uh, mallet heads <laughs> who are serious <laughs> into percussion uh you know check out the color of wood uh it's a lot of marimba all in one place um but well done and uh you know it's just a focus on uh, mallet maestros so yeah how how much music can you get out of uh hitting little blocks of wood and uh metal well get some interesting stuff and that's what we focused on tonight so yeah, I'm guessing we're going to give this episode the title Mallet Maestros yet. I felt I liked the classical recordings tonight better. I was kind of more in into those. Like so. uh yeah, well, of course we got a new Renitsky, which is always good. And I like yeah. the Beethoven too. Yeah. Yeah, the, the drone, drone one, was a, a nice discovery. Yeah. The drone one was uh, interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, next week I've got another uh, potential discovery for us. Um it's just a little. Co- Are we ready for the coming attractions? You know what you're doing next week, or yeah, coming attractions. What do you got next week? Okay, well, I've got one of our favorite composers. We have two um, uh, performer classical performers that we've already talked about making a return. You know, with their new albums from this year. One of them is music by one of our favorite composers on the Adult Music Podcast, C.P.E. Bach. Mm. On a recording that features Justin Taylor, the harpsichordist that we like so much on the. Uh, we talked about his Rameau recording, the fa- yeah, yeah. La Famille Rameau, last year. And then we have uh, uh, Nielsen and Sibelius violin concertos played by Johan Dahlen. And we heard his um, kind of Scandinavian violin and piano album last year. That was oh, really Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember. He's a really young, young guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's a young guy. And here he's in two big concertos. And I'm really curious to hear how he's going to do this. And then we have a class set of clarinet works the most uh, bassett clarinet in fact not just the clarinet it has the best clarinet gets some uh, lower tones on it which of course is always going to be appealing to me i love those low reed sounds um so the mozart uh, clarinet concerto and a new uh concerto let me take a look at this guy uh by uh vim hendrix 
called Sutra, and uh, it's inspired by yoga. And oh. I, <laughs> this is going to lend itself I, to I, lots of I, jokes. I re- Maybe, unless it's a great piece. I mean, I haven't heard it yet, but we'll have to. Uh, you, you never know; it might be this great new discovery. Anyway, my it's chakras, a, it's a concerto for basset clarinet. My chakras are aligning and, already. Oh, there's so many, there's so many potential <laughs> good jokes from this. But uh, I, it might be a great piece, though. So we'll have to hear it first. We will give it a, uh, you know, we'll we will give it a very respectful review, despite the jokes, unless we don't like it, yeah. of course. But that depends. Yeah, I, I, for one, am curious to hear. I think this might be the first piece ever dedicated to yoga in the classical tradition that's ever yeah. been laid might, down on paper. So it might I'm gonna be have the to last one we ever that. talk about. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Not if the jokes are good, it won't be. Yeah, no, that's true too. We'll have to find, uh, yeah, good things to make fun of. Now, anyway, I'm gonna go uh, off riff on that theme with all clarinet recordings next week. Okay. Um, so I've got a Latin clarinet. I've got oh, that's a cool. uh, kind of a jazz tribute one. And then I've been uh, deciding, or actually, since you're doing yoga, maybe I should go yeah. with that Indian uh, one. Are you going to go with the Indian one? No, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I think I'm going to go with the other one because uh, there's a recording that's got both clarinet and bass clarinet. Uh, you can't, you can't not have the bass clarinet. Come on. Okay, gotta so we got to go with that one yeah. for sure. So it's going to be all clarinet. Because you know how we love that, man. We, we love, love those low reeds. Those yeah. are fantastic sounding instruments. So we'll do all clarinet next week, and okay. uh, I think I've got enough for a flute episode too, which would be cool. And mm, uh, I've got the flute because the CPE Bach has a flute yeah. on it too. It's too bad. I'm already doing that one next week. But anyway. and then uh, mm. we, uh, as we were discussing earlier, I think in uh, works I'm going to have an Italian jazz episode, like uh, piano paisans or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have enough Italian piano too, but hey, I've got a paisan. Lo- yeah, <laughs> hey paisan. I've, but I've got enough. Uh, other recordings too. I think I've got two new Italian trumpeter uh, recordings, so I, I'll mix it up with the instruments. But we've got yeah, a, lot, got a lot of really intriguing stuff on the way too for the next Spanish few months. So we should be okay. Too. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, we could do this. I could do this every day. Uh, yeah, I could too. Send the checks. Uh, send the checks to Arnhem Studio and uh, yeah, given the money. Given the money, I'd have. Uh, I'd, I'd need a new house, though, to house my <laughs> well, ever-growing CD collection. <laughs> if uh, you know, Deezer hired us and put us on to be their curator instead of, or any of these streaming services. You, you know who should of, hire us? App, Apple Music. They need us. Apple needs us. Yeah. Yeah. Spotify needs us too. They're not good as far as classical goes. Yeah. And if we were on the streaming service, we could actually play the music too. So, you know, yeah. we could just put it all together and not worry about copyright things. So, yeah. anyway. I, re- I rely heavily on Presto Music in England for, for new releases, though. So, I guess they're on top of the, their game. So, uh, they're late, they though. Should... They're late. They're late. They're 30 days behind the releases on when Sometimes, stuff comes yeah, out. Sometimes, yeah, they are. I yeah. noticed that. Yeah. That's why they need us. <laughs> we're, we're out there, curators for hire. Um, Going to get the, the most interesting cutting edge things so come on streaming service send us your offers yeah they're they're off at least a week behind on a lot of releases by like yeah. uh labels outside of england but that, i guess that's understandable though but it's hard yeah. to um yeah know what's going on we're here to help that's what we're doing <laughs> we're providing a service to the music community there it is yeah 
Anyway, give me some good stuff to listen to. Brighten up your life. I want to tell you, doing this podcast, I now have to listen to six albums a week, and I've changed for for the better mm. by doing that. I think Me it too. kind of tuned my brain waves in a in a yeah. in an appealing way. It's uh, certainly um, given me a more positive outlook on life. So we suggest you do the same. Give us listen to these recordings. I, I mean, listening them. is fun, but listening and trying to. Uh be able to relay that <laughs> at least yeah. at least somewhat comprehensively is a is a tall order but it really brings you into the music uh it's been fun for me and i hope hmm. that you know even if uh, people get tired of listening to our uh blathering about the tunes they actually listen to the actual music well you don't want to hear us talk about it. you want to hear what it sounds yeah. like we're just trying to get you to listen to get it you to that's listen all. to the music so yeah. listen to our jokes uh because yeah. especially if we're going to have yoga and clarinet, I mean, that's just, I don't know. That's just asking <laughs> for some good jokes there. But, uh, we'll Watch see this what piece happens. like blow us away now. We're going to be like, oh, it's the best oh, thing yeah. ever. I don't know. We're going to all convert to Hinduism or something. <laughs> uh. <laughs> anyway, we'll see yeah. what happens with that. Uh, a lot of things coming up in the pipeline. This has been episode 61 of Adult Music the podcast with music for the mature mind. And once again, we want to thank Fast Signs of Staten Island for our cool neon glowing logo. I noticed ever since we got that up there, there's a bunch of new podcasts that are trying to capture that neon theme. Yeah. <laughs> it stands out because I see it on my, because um, I have an Apple podcast. I have yeah. like a Mac. And uh, when I put the uh, podcast thing up, it just stands out in the whole crowd. It's really... Yeah. Uh, None of the other ones I've seen look as good as that one. So please do like and subscribe on whatever platform uh, you listen to us on. Check us out on Facebook. We've got our page there with our handsome mugs. Send us an instant message on Facebook or write to us direct. Email adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, do check us out on Deezer if you want to find out the playlist for next week. I'll have that up tomorrow. It'll also be on the Facebook page. And I'll, I'm going to put up a photo of the CDs on the Facebook page. Check that out. Yeah, <laughs> okay. check that out. And I'll put up yeah. uh, any associated uh, videos of live performances with the uh, jazz uh, so you can get a little extra insight if you come over to the Facebook page. Well, until then, in episode 62 next week. We wish you a happy week of listening and we'll see you again next time. Mm -hmm.